Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Directors Club Podcast. Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Laskowski. And I'm Patrick Rapole, your guest. Wow. By your, I mean yours, Jim. I'm not glad the, you're not here. Not the listener's guest. <laughs> I guess we are a guest in their homes or their cars. Yeah, or their their shopping experience, wherever they happen to be listening to this, they are inviting us into their ears, and in that way, I am their guest. I have a third guest too. Who? Who's that? Oh, the cat. Yeah, Lucy's here. You have a cat named Lucy, and it's on the bed. Yeah. Even though we just recorded a bunch of punk music, where I was screaming like Jello Biafra, uh, if, if Jello Biafra couldn't carry a tune. And <laughs> I thought for sure your cat was going to go running, but no, she stuck around. I know. I'm really amazed. I'm glad that she's here because uh, I know she's a huge fan of the two films we're going to be talking about today. Really? You know why we're talking about these two particular films today, Patrick? Uh, you remind me. Well, it's because I love movies. And I want to talk about some movies. <clears throat> it's because every year we do a birthday bonus podcast. See, I don't want. I don't. I don't need any more gifts. I don't. I don't even need. You know, the latest 4K release of Dumbo or whatever. Mm-hmm. I prefer the company of good people. Oh, and you settle for me. That's very <laughs> sweet. <laughs> hey, I'm glad. I'm just glad that I'm still here on this planet, and uh, I can't think of a better birthday gift than to podcast. All right. That might be pathetic. You can. I could. <laughs> I could think of five birthday gifts better than a podcast. Oh well, go ahead. One money. <laughs> <laughs> Two gift certificate to anywhere. Mm. Three nice dinner. Four uh, that uh, John Cassavetti's Criterion box set, the Blu-rays. Uh, five uh, the new Martin, uh, which I got Blu-ray. You you ha- you already have that, so that yeah. you. You can. I can only think of four for you, but for me, all five of those. Would How about qualify. a twelve pack of Dr Pepper Zero Sugar Strawberries and Cream? You already have that too. You're a very rich man, Jim. Mm, baby, I'm a rich man, <laughs> and I am glad that I'm turning forty-five. But I want to see your smiling face forty-five years from now. And uh, <laughs> Jim, I apologize. Jim reached over to his keyboard. I thought he was going to play like a little <laughs> jingle for being forty-five. I'm glad I'm forty-five. Mm-hmm. Oh man, Mr. Perfect Pitch coming in again. Very impressive. You know this this podcast has really gone downhill. Everyone, it's like like an old traditional episode. I guess. I guess this is closer to like when we were in my basement eating Papa John's. Yeah, you're drinking old style now. Drinking old style strawberries and cream, Dr. Pepper. Mm -hmm. We have not said what this podcast is about. I know. Well. I like to request things for my birthday. That's right. And I had this idea. 
Because I had this terrible idea for April Fool's Day where I was going to be like, hey, everybody, listen to us talk in Patrick's basement about Inglorious Bastards. One of the, the first recording we did, was that even officially Director's Club at that point? That was basically the thing that would become Director's Club. Yeah. Horrible. Horrible yeah. recording, I'm sure. I know, it is, and I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. And then I thought, what if we remade an episode from the past? Oh, okay. Yeah. God, what if we just went back and t- like just redid everything from episode one? Wow, that would be wild. That sounds like every um, director we've done. That sounds like a sitcom where we both do a horrible crime and the judge has to come up with a particularly <laughs> harsh punishment. And he's like, guess what? You're doing fucking Gus uh, Van Sant again. Doing Gus Van Sant again. With, uh, oh. We have to not, track down all the people. Oh, God. No, I don't think that would work. Yeah. No, we should just have Bill Ackerman on for every episode. Uh, he doesn't have enough to do. No, not at all. <laughs> Hi, He's not Bill. the busiest person in the world. The only person I know who's listening. Hi, Bill. Me too. Hi, Bill. Thank you. Oh, and thank you for coming out, hopefully, if you live in the Chicagoland area, to the Chicago Critics Film Festival at chicagocriticsfilmfestival.com at the Music Box Theater, May 5th through the 11th. See you there. So what are we recreating? What old episode are we recreating? Episode two. Okay. Do you remember that, Patrick? Well, the first episode... I am Jim Laskowski. I am Patrick Rapola. Yes, you are. Digging Joe Walsh. You better. It's amazing. You just subtract the Eagles from Joe Walsh, and then you just... Oh. We, episode one was Cameron Crowe, because we wanted to start with directors we disagreed on. You were a fan of Cameron Crowe, and I was mm-hmm, not a fan of Cameron mm-hmm, Crowe. Mm-hmm. So episode two was Rob Zombie. Because I was a fan of Rob Zombie, and you were not a fan of Rob Zombie. I thought you were drunk. I know for a fact that I probably was. Episode two, we talked about The Devil's Rejects. What else did we talk about on that episode? Oh, a film that I had just seen fairly recently that you also had just seen based on my recommendation. And it was called Somewhere by Sofia Coppola. Were we ever so young? 2010. Totally different time. 2011, right? Is that 2011? I thought it was a 2010 film. 12 years ago. Well, it, it was one of those that came out later in the year, maybe? Ah, uh, maybe it's, yeah, maybe it's IMDb 2010, but the actual yeah. n- normies like us see it in 2011. Yeah, it might have been one of those. Okay, okay. It counted for 2010, but then you might have seen it like early 2011. Yeah, so I I think that you, as a non-fan of Rob Zombie, did not at all like Devil's Rejects, and you you were just like baffled that I did. And then you recommended Somewhere to me, and I saw it on your recommendation, and I did not like Somewhere by Sofia Coppola, and I was baffled that you did. I know. It Um, was a baffling episode. It was just, like, nonstop. Who am I talking with? We almost broke up. Yeah. You know, it was over. It was almost over. It was, like, the shortest podcast ever, two episodes long. Misunderstanding, didn't understand, doesn't matter. Jim joined the band again. La-da-da-da. I also played a cover of Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, and you were won over. All again, all over again. Sometimes that's all it takes. I'm very yeah. easy. But so on this episode, we are going to return to those two films. Correct. Uh, famously, I, th- I think these are two films that have stuck in our craw in terms of like you did. We do. We just like bring it up as a jab at each other. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, well, you like somewhere. So what the fuck do you know? And you're like, well, sure. Devil's Rejects, Screaming Tootie, Fucking Fruity. You, so what do you know? Um, so we decided to, you know, in our new, we're older. We're wiser. We got sugar. Somewhat. We got zero sugar, strawberries, and cream Dr. Pepper <laughs> in our lives. We're mellow. We, we're not we not. We take edibles to, now, yeah, so that helps, too. Yeah, it's legal, so we can we have access to more uh, in, uh, engaging weed. Um, 
we're going to disagree if we do disagree. I, I don't know. We both rewatched these films for this podcast. It's gonna. I not, didn't even log them on Letterboxd because yeah, I was like, I am not going to spoil this it, at it's, all. It is possible I would have seen it. So we are going to uh, probably have this with yes, less yelling is what I'm going to guess. I think so. Less berating, less, what is wrong with you? Right. Kind of an approach. Because uh, I am definitely more chill. I'm trying to watch everything with an open mind. Yeah. Me you too. Know, um, it's just hard. I go back to that that person that was immediately reactionary to why would somebody like this? Yeah. What's wrong with them? And there are legions of Rob Zombie fans. Right. I, I, I think oh. the why would somebody like this is the cousin to the like stories of Wes Craven being at dinner parties. And <clears> then they find out he made Last House on the Left. And they're like, oh, you're a fucking sadist fucking sicko. Yeah. Get yeah, away yeah, from yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that's there's like a <laughs> judgmental uh, sort of streak to that. Why would anybody like this? Like the, you must, you gotta, must like human suffering if you like Rob Zombie films. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just sort of dismissed it as nihilistic and just went, "You must be nihilistic then if you like this." Yeah, which is not true. It's not true. People can like whatever they want. Yeah, I'm I, slightly to the left of nihilistic. <laughs> <laughs> it's not not true, but uh, no. Um, anyway, so we're gonna talk about these two films. I I thought we could talk about them chronologically. I thought that was a good idea. Uh, so we'll start with 2005. The Devil's Rejects. I, uh, I, I, I'm just gonna get the l- less surprising thing out of the way. This is a movie I've seen like 20 times or whatever. So when I rewatched it for this, it uh, did not. I did not suddenly have a come to Jesus moment where I realized it was a bad movie. I still really enjoyed this movie, Jim. I'm curious, uh, what did you think about The Devil's Rejects? It's pretty good. Yeah. Um, there are problems. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. There are yeah. flaws. Agreed. Agreed. It's it's not unlike my reaction to the House of a Thousand Corpses review from that first episode. I was like, you know, there are things to appreciate about this movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it's weird, too, because I, I messaged you um, before I rewatched The Devil's Rejects. I had watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. That's another one we, we disagree I, on a, uh, I a lot. I vehemently disliked it quite a bit on my first couple of viewings. Now I really like it. Yeah. I'm like, wait a minute. Who is this person? I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, again, growth and change and, you know, you sort of, I feel less judgmental in general now. But watching Devil's Rejects, I started to just appreciate Rob Zombie's attempt as opposed to be like he's a poser that he's just a rip-off artist. Like, it was very much just, oh, he likes Toby Hooper, so this, yeah. is, this is him, like, regurgitating Toby Hooper, and right. there's not a whole lot of originality to it. That's not true. He's all right. Not a great director, not an awful director. It's It's got mo- it's got specific touches of that only Rob Zombie can do. Sometimes it's grating. Oh, yeah. Uh, sometimes the dialogue, I'm just like, okay, there's just too many F-bombs. <laughs> you know, in a row that are kind of ridiculous. Uh, and I still don't like Sherry Moon Zombie. You don't I, like her in this movie. I, I mean, I think she does a convincing job once she's being tortured. I think once she's talking less. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I just... Mm, oh, so, so I guess the whole scene in the hotel room, I still... Uh, her... Mm. I, I... Okay, so... I will say this is a this is a movie that it's 
I always knew it was flawed. I feel like Rob Zombie is like a Diablo Cody for me, where like really big swings with the dialogue and about a third of it is really cringy. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like Jennifer's Body is a movie I fucking love. About a third of the words that come out of characters' mouths in Jennifer's Body make me really cringe. Sure. Um, very different movie. But at any rate, like overall, on balance, I, I prefer when it hits. I like when it hits enough that when it misses, I'm totally fine with it. Because that's just like, that's the price of admission. The thing I've always loved about Rob Zombie, and I've always loved Rob Zombie from the first time I heard Hellbilly Deluxe, like his first solo album. Oh, his music's great. His music videos are great. The last two White Zombie albums, the first uh, Rob Zombie album, are just like some of my absolute favorite music ever made. And But like, he is someone who was really fully formed as an artist in in totally different disciplines. Not not just one different discipline, and like a lot of different format before he ever made his first film and so he doesn't have that like problem a uh, first time filmmakers problem in House of a Thousand Corpses where it's like oh he doesn't have a point of view oh he doesn't have a specific taste he hasn't developed his aesthetic yet yeah, like it's, it's not very consistent it's all there the problem with House of a Thousand Corpses is it feels like a guy who thinks this is the only movie anyone's ever going to let me make so <laughs> I'm just going to throw it in all and it's totally undisciplined um, Devil's Rejects he gets to make another movie he gets to learn from his mistakes and it's it's the only Rob Zombie movie I would actually say is disciplined. I think he tried again with Lords of Salem. I think, I yeah, think that, that one's interesting. I too. think that style of movie is just like not he's not a good enough filmmaker to yeah. pull off that creeping dread. Like, um, but but this kind of movie, this western, this road trip, this uh, yeah, sort of really brutal uh, serial killer kind of story. I thought. This particular movie is a movie where he is really understands what he wants to do and he really cares about telling a story, which is almost never the case. Almost every Rob Zombie movie, the second it starts, you know how it's going to end. Like, obviously, House of a Thousand Corpses, once you realize this Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you go, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. it's going to end like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What, uh, Halloween and Halloween 2 are obviously, you know, foregone conclusions. Salem, you know, Lords of Salem and 31. And all those movies are just like, yeah, it's just going to be the thing. Um, Devil's Rejects, you watch it and you're like, it's a one, it moves like a bullet. The pace is amazing. And two, that's true. you never can, it's never obvious what the next thing that's going to happen is. Um, and I really love that about it. I'm glad that you brought up Western because, I don't know, uh, it's his Wild Bunch. It's yeah, yeah, his yeah. Badlands. It's his Bonnie and Clyde, obviously, with the ending. Um, and it's less cartoonish than Corpses. Mm-hmm. And... Again, more consistent and establishes a story and a tone that, again, like my feeling was, this is a director that loves Last House on the Left. This is a director that loves Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he's, but like at the same time, that's what Tarantino does. Right. That's what Paul Thomas Anderson did early on. It was just like their interpretation or their uh, like revisionist uh, idea of films that they grew up with and loved. So I really can't be angry the way I was. Also, it's not, it isn't that limited. Like yeah, House yeah. of the Corpses, it's more limited. But like this is like, this is also the guy who loves Peckinpah. This is also the guy who uh, loves Jack Hill. Like this is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that era for sure. Um, great cinematography. Yeah. I, who shot this? I should, it's I should it's a documentary Guy who mostly had a lot of experience with documentaries, he, yeah, uh, which is why Rob Zombie hired him. So it's mostly handheld. It's all sixteen millimeter, which is 
perfect. Mm-hmm. All of his mm-hmm. early movies, not all of it, because Halloween is 35, but uh, everything pre-Lords of Salem is on film, and this and uh, Halloween 2 are on 16 millimeter, and I think that's like the format that really works for him. Um, what was I going to say? But it does lack... I don't know. For the most part, outside of maybe the hotel room, like a s- certain tension. Yes. It isn't a horror movie. No. And I guess that's kind of what I expected first time I walked into this. Yeah. It's not scary. And in fact, I think the biggest problem with The Devil's Rejects is when it comes time for the tables to turn, he can't do it. Mm. He can't really make it scary that they're being tortured. And, and even like the specific choices of how they're tortured are like, not cinematic, like someone getting hit with a cattle prod is just like that's a sound effect, and someone getting poked with a prop. It's a, you don't yeah. feel it because it's not a getting electrocuted is not very cinematic. I was expecting it to be more visceral. Than Staple it is. gun, like also just like that's a sound effect, and someone pushing a prop against them. Yeah. Um. And I mean, it, it helped that I was high, but it was also um like <laughs> this I is sort a of bad gave vibe. It, I, I would not, I would not think this would help. No, I I gave in more to laughing, and again, I think I said this when we first reviewed it. I love Sid Haig. I love him in this. And there are certain <laughs> there are certain filmmakers who are just like they are they they can deliver his dialogue. Yeah. Um, Sid I think Haig. Bill Mosley is one of those guys. I think Sid Haig is one of those guys. I think um. Fuck, who plays the sheriff again? Oh, William Forsythe. William Forsythe is definitely one of those guys. Yeah. Uh, Leslie Easterbrook is so fucking good in this I, movie. I remember the first time I saw, like, I couldn't stand it and I couldn't stand Karen Black. Now I love it. I thought she was phenomenal. <laughs> like, in her very small role. Like, I used, to, I don't know. I, I would yeah, Karen Black's House of a so Thousand Corpses. Great. Leslie Easterbrook is in. And Leslie Easterbrook was from the Police Academy movies, exactly. which I grew up with. And there's I had, so many. There's so many. Uh, Ken yeah, Forey is yeah, perfect in this yeah, movie. Yeah, I yeah. love Michael Berryman in oh, this movie. Yeah. He's very fun. Uh, uh, I, I just watched Pee Wee's Big Adventure the other day and <laughs> seeing E.G. Daly. Uh, yeah. She is so funny. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're, I watching it this time, I was like, oh, she's making some weird character choices about yeah. what she is like and that whole interaction where she's talking about doing Star Wars role play <laughs> is so fun. Like Michael Berryman going, boss, they're called droids. <laughs> yeah, no, I laughed more. Um, I just, mm. you know, you know, who, you know, an actor who I always thought would be able to deliver Rob Zombie dialogue. And it was a shame that she never did is uh, Natasha Leone. Oh, sure. Especially I saw Freeway 2, which is uh, Confessions of a Trick Baby. And I've I lo- been meaning to see that. Freeway 2 I is... The, a, I love the first one. Free, I prefer Freeway, but Freeway 2 is a lot of fun and just so trashy. And it has this sort of dialogue like Rob Zombie. And of course, like Natasha Leone just got that croak. I forget what role, but apparently she was supposed to be in mm. Devil's Rejects and she had to drop out for something. Oh, yeah. So I think Rosario Dawson was also she cut? She shot, yeah. She she got cut because there's the character of Dr. Satan from the right, first movie right. that Rob Zombie thought was too far-fetched, yeah. so her scene got cut. But but this would fit right in with Grindhouse. Yeah, yeah. This That's the other thing. This is a movie that is like... There was a whole wave of faux Grindhouse shit after Grindhouse came mm-hmm. out. This movie got there first. Yeah. There are certain moments of this. Was that, this around the same time as Wolf Creek? Um, Wolf Creek was 2006. This is 2005. So okay. this is right around that time. Yeah. Um, I never seen Wolf Creek, so I can't comment on specifically how 70s it is. There was definitely a lot of like torture yeah. movies of that era that don't actually feel like they fell out of the 70s. The part in this where Sid, uh, where 
Sid Haig is trying uh, to get PJ Souls' car, and he goes, I gotta commandeer your vehicle for some official clown business. And she's, and she's like, what? What's this about clown business? And then, yeah, like, and then there's this, like, 70s electronic music stinger, and he yeah. makes a face, and the camera pushes in on him. It feels like it fell out of I Drink Your Blood or something mm-hmm. like that. It yeah, feels yeah, like yeah. it fell out of it. He goes, did I stutter, bitch? It's so fucking funny. I think that's yeah. a conversation I remember from the original yeah, from episode I, two we had is that scene is like so funny scene, to me yeah i mean i still watch it and want sid hagen pretty much every scene like yeah. including the hotel room i mean i like bill mosley now before i was like eh, but now i like him do you, and, you, you know, do I, and again you, seeing texas chainsaw 2 was very helpful like i sort of just gave into the tone because i just for some reason this is true of things like the doom generation i feel like a lot of the times these movies are just like let's get as crazy as possible sure. and let's you know it's almost like the trauma thing to me like it's different tone but same um yeah just same principle yeah, yeah I, that turns me off sometimes but i think i'm warming up more to where i'm like maybe i should watch the doom generation again <laughs> cuz like it's similar There's that's a road movie. movies i'm into i like uh i like uh um the living end and uh splendor but it's like uh, uh, my instant reaction to this and doom generation were very similar and like fuck this i yeah, just, yeah, yeah. this is not this is not working it's not I well, don't know that's, why. And that's me with uh, Natural Born Killers. So, yeah. like, there's still movies like that for me where I'm like, Natural Born Killers, fuck off. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, in many ways, very similar to this movie. Yeah. I just think Natural Born Killers is more smug and less funny. And that's a terrible combination. Well, it's coming from Oliver Stone. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, I guess I just. What do you dismissed... think about Bill Mosley in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 versus like Bill Mosley in this? I, I think that, well, he's little more goofy and cartoonish in sure. Texas Chainsaw 2. Here he's more menacing in a very effective way for the most part, I think. I mean, he's very creepy. Like, I think, again, I just thought of it as, um, like, just being pure villain, and that's all there was to it. And that was true of, like, like every member of the family here. And then suddenly I, I saw what Zombie was going for with the transition better this time, with William Forsythe suddenly like just going on a killing spree wanting to get in like just get his revenge and that's all there was to it. Um so he's trying to get you to side a little bit better yeah. with them. Yeah. You know, and I don't know if he's successful at creating sympathy for these repulsive <laughs> killers, but I I I felt I, I was more appreciative of his attempt uh-huh. as opposed to like being angry about it. This so. is the first time I actually appreciated Cherry Moon Zombie. Um, that's interesting. She's very grating in, uh, the, in house of a thousand corpses. The thing I like about the, once you've seen this movie like a hundred times or whatever, like you begin to real, like pick apart the actual interpersonal dynamics between the characters and you realize that there is actual meat there. There's things, um, (laughs) the thing I love about the character of baby is that she's the only one who seems legitimately crazy. Uh, everyone else is just like, I have no morals. I do not care if anyone else lives or dies. I think it's fun to kill people. So I'm going to do that Mm -hmm. because I'm a, I'm a sadistic, horrible serial killer. She's, but like, they're totally in 
can charge of of what they're doing and they know what they're doing and why. And she like in the moment where they like push into the hotel room and then she just gets distracted by the jacket that the uh, guitar player is wearing on the TV. <laughs> she's just like, shit, that's a cool jacket. Bill Moses like, what? It's like on TV, the jacket. And he's just like, shit. He's like, you can't keep your mind on the fucking job. And they just start like yelling at each other. Um, I love that. I love that. Uh, that she just seems like maybe she is addicted to TV. <laughs> in a way. Like, like she just seems like a like okay. like uh, she just is a perpetual teenager in a way that I really enjoy. Um, I think she's uh, she has a little bit more depth in uh, Three from Hell, which is a terrible movie. I but don't think I'll ever watch it because I honestly don't need a third movie. Like, well, I, well imagine when this ends. Imagine is satisfying a imagine it. a version of Devil's Rejects that is worse and has no Sid Haig in it. And then, uh, yeah, that's what I'm. No, um, it's it's. I I there's things I admire about Three from Hell. It's not very good, but the baby starts still develops a little bit more and more in that. And so like Sherry Moon is doing something, or at the very least, like Rob Zombie is doing something in writing the character of Baby. Um there's just like little bits here and there where you get like the one upmanship between Bill Mosley and Sid Haig and like how they how they're both sort of wrangling to be in charge, but it doesn't become like a plot point about like ah, oh, and then the distrust between them is how the survive like hostages go free, which is of course that's that's the uh, that's the narrative twist of this movie is that you think that one of the people in Banjo and Sullivan is going to survive because you think it's one of these movies where they're going to get killed off one by one mm. uh, until the very end, and then it's just like no, it's a psycho; they're all dead. And we're totally in a different realm now. Yeah. Um, well, I was. I just, maybe it, if they just simply cut the scene where she's going Chinese, Japanese. I can't stand that. It's like, oh, that's a little bit more of the House of a Thousand Corpses baby yeah. where she's doing that. <laughs> yeah. Like that. laugh constantly mm-hmm. in that movie. No, but um, from, that coming from from Leslie Easterbrook was great. Like, well, yeah, I, that's sort of over the top insanity like screaming and put everything pushed to 11 i'll see you in fucking hell yeah (laughs) yeah like again it's obnoxious but not i don't know i didn't find it annoying in the way that i used to i was just kind of like i gave in as opposed to fight it yeah it felt good but at the same time there's still things there's one too many musical montages sure you know to classic rock and i'm just like and the you know needle drops are very kind of some cliche. Of them are, some of them are excellent. Some of them are cliched. I love uh, uh, rock on. Okay, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, like yeah. that little like the, ca- cool. the the crane shot coming down on mm-hmm. this like nighttime swampy like whorehouse village or whatever. <laughs> like you're like you're like what is the nature of this place? Better uh, used in this than in Dream a Little Dream with the quarries. That's for sure. I've never seen Dream a Little Dream. You don't but ever I, have to I will see take it. your word on it. Yeah. Uh, I look, let's make a death pact. I'll never watch Dream a Little Dream. You never watch three from hell. Okay. Okay. Deal. That's easy enough. Um uh, I th- yeah. I thought Priscilla Barnes is really good. Like Oh sure. I think I think the flip where the couple there, yeah, they're both they're both very good. The uh, the flip where the banjo and Sullivan who are kind of obnoxious, like bickering, <laughs> whatever, like they're kind of they're not quite as fuck you fucking fucking dick fuck like as Rob Zombie can get, but they're all like before they the assault on them happens, they're a little bit, but like all of that stuff in the hotel room to me is just like really upsetting, and then they're and like the thing the stuff that makes it more upsetting is almost like it's less 
uh, it's less what Otis is doing than like in the background you see Baby like nudging <laughs> the other people. Yeah, like she's just like poke, like prodding them, like uh, like they're a fish out of water or something. Mm-hmm. Like there's like there's moments where he's being cruel and you just hear her in the background laughing, and that's the stuff that really gets under my skin. Yeah, um, and it's and it's weird too because like oh what what happens to the final victim in the hotel room is so Texas Chainsaw. And I got so mad the first time I saw it. I'm like, he's directly ripping it off, people! And now I'm just like, eh, he's he's doing it. It's fine. That scene is not in Texas Chainsaw. Well, I mean, just like, okay, well, it's I guess it's more in two, where she at one point is wearing this skin mask. She gets the skin mask put on her to, like, disguise. It's like a different thing. Yeah, the skin, he did not invent the uh, face rip off mask yeah. thing um, okay. for sure but like it's not a, it's not he's stealing a whole sequence from texas chainsaw i think it's very funny that when the maid first of all uh yeah, brian posein get gets shot in the head right there on the floor so mm-hmm. like there has to be just like a gallon of blood on the carpet there and the maid does not notice that gallon <laughs> of blood she walks right into the bathroom i love that they wrote their own name in blood on the yeah. shower wall that shit is so fucking corny that's <laughs> <laughs> so, like all right whatever yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I think the thing about this is it is very difficult to deliver Rob Zombie dialogue, and there's just like a shockingly high percentage of actors who can act- actually do it. And he is doing legitimately like Rob Zombie. I'm not ever going to say he's on the level of Quentin Tarantino. Please don't. He's legitimately doing the thing that Quentin Tarantino would do, where he would pluck people that Hollywood left behind and forgot and say, no, there's value here. Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Like S- Sorth, William Forsyth. William yeah. Forsyth and Sid Haig yeah. and um, uh, uh, E.G. Daly. And like, there's just like all of these like little bit parts. Uh, Leslie Easterbrook. Like, there's just like, you, you, you don't expect uh there's all like once you start digging through the filmography of any given person, you can always track it back to like, oh, Rob Zombie probably liked that movie. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it, again, like I, when I first saw like, oh, this character's named Otis because he likes Henry Portrait Circle, and then oh, the guy who plays Otis is playing William Forsythe's brother. I was just like. At, at first, I was well. Kind of Otis just angry, is Otis but, is from the first movie, and Otis. Oh, is, that's right. Yeah, and yeah, that's all Groucho. Yeah. 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 That gra- oh, sure. what do you think about the film critic scene? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's hilarious. <laughs> the fucking Gene Shallot as yeah. uh the, the little smirk he gives when I promise you, I have read at least like four different books about cult films or whatever that will mention Skidoo, and they all talk about <laughs> Groucho as God, as being like yeah. the greatest joke anyone's ever conceived of. I don't know anyone who's actually like really goes in hard for Skidoo. I don't think that's considered a very good auto no, premature movie. Not. But like God, people love to be smug about, like, and Groucho plays God. Isn't that cool? And Groucho's God. Oh, my God. So, like, the fact that the critic of this movie does that is so funny. This is a sad state of cinematic affairs. Yeah, yeah. (sighs) That's a great line. Um, No, that whole scene is great. I I, I was doing a little research. I was shocked. Like, this is also reviewed well. For as grating as it is, horrible as it is, like, Ebert and Roper gave it two thumbs up. I Um, know. It's weird. It's weird to think because, I mean, I was more connected to people who actively loathe this movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, Nick DiGilio, Eric Childress. And 
it was more of just like, let's gang up on him because he does kind of suck and he's kind of a poser and he's trying to do what Tarantino does, but failing. I think that's silly. I think, I think as Rob Zombie's career goes on, it gets very easy to roll your eyes at the crutches that he increasingly leans on. I couldn't get through the monsters. I tried. I have not watched. That's the only one I haven't watched. Um, but like. I, I there's something about all of his movies. Maybe not 31. 31's the only movie oh, that God, I it's just that. like that movie is so fucking horrible. Yeah. Um, but like there's something about his thing that really speaks to me and was like and to be fair, like Rob Zombie, the artist, uh, was very important to me as being this like Rosetta Stone for all this other shit. Because mm, like yeah. I liked the Sonics of heavy metal. I thought so much of that shit was so corny and it was just like so hard for me to get into so much of it because it took itself so seriously. Mm. And a lot of it was just like, we're scary demons. And it's like, no, you're not. You're fucking dorks. (laughs) Like even as a teenager, I was just like, Slipknot, you're not a bunch of serial killers. You're not scary. Um, and like Rob Zombie was still into all of that same like horror movie signifier shit, but he was just like, isn't this fucking funny? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, it is. It is fun. And that was like, okay. And then I can like dig into this. I thought he was always taking himself so seriously. No, I don't think he's ever taken himself seriously. Now I see the humor more. Yeah. Now I'm more open to it. I think this is the most serious he has ever taken himself. And there's a ton of like wild humor in this. Yeah. Um, no, for sure. I don't think he like that. Like, there's the other there's the other argument to be made that it's like, oh, this is the like a quintessential Bush era like yeah, horror 9/11. film about nine eleven. We're in Iraq terrorism. You know, we become the monsters. I don't. I don't. I don't think any of that is essential to this movie. Yeah. But I do. I have to think that informs it. I forget in the there's a. I wonder if that was. In, I don't think that was intentional. On I don't think he thinks about. I think he the thinks subtext of, or. I I think. I think he is a person in the world who notices the world, and then that stuff comes out. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't think he was trying to build a uh, allegory of anything or anything like that. No. But there was a uh, there's a really fantastic documentary about the making of this movie. It's two and a half hours long, uh, and it's just like goes day by day, every day of shooting, and it is just like if you love nuts and bolts procedure of how films get made. Like, it's one of the best film schools you ever see because it is actually just like, oh, yeah, this is why the costume part is important and all that. There is uh, someone who gets interviewed in that documentary says that, like, uh, to in order to, like, function as human beings, this is his theory about horror or whatever, in order to function as human beings, our fantasies need to be more outsized than our reality. And we right now live in a very intense reality, so everything has to be bigger and crazier yeah. in the fantasies. And I thought that was a really interesting take. I forget who said it. I think uh. it might have been Sid Haig or something like that. But, um, like, I, I think it's just, like, he existed mm. in the world he existed in. And I mean, but, like, to be fair, like, he made House of a Thousand Corpses in the 90s. Uh, House of a Thousand Corpses, the, the story of that making that movie is really funny because... Universal, for some reason, greenlit this, like, $30 million horror movie that is, like, in the era it was made in, like, the late 90s. There's nothing like it around. There, yeah. This is pre-Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. This is pre-Saw. All of this. And, like, for some reason, yeah, they, they took a risk. It. They, took yeah. a, they took a risk. I don't know why, other than the fact that Rob Zombie and White Zombie were, like, just kind of hot musical artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, for a major studio, $30 million is not like... Wasn't Lionsgate involved? Was Lion- it- so what happened was Universal saw the movie he made based on the script he wrote. So you, you can't <laughs> say that he pulled one over on them. But uh-huh. they were like, oh, this is unreleasable. We could never get an R rating. This is going to be NC-17. Like, this is just... We can't do anything with it. So they tried to sell it off. No one was buying it. Eventually, he said, 
all right, I'll buy it for like 500000 or whatever. And they so they sold the rights and the movie oh. back to Rob Zombie, immediately sold it to Lionsgate for $2 million or something like that. Nice. So like okay. he made a yeah. million and a half dollars before the movie came out. Right. Um, I think it made all the money back. On the yeah, well, first... it was a surprise hit. But yeah. the thing was, time passed. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> and Universal was right. If House of Thousand Corpses came out in 1999, it would have been a fucking disaster. But Universe, uh, House of a Thousand Corpses post 9 11 in 2002 or 2003 or whatever, all of a sudden it's a viable yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and audiences were ready for it. Audiences were finally ready for it. But like, yeah. Rob Zombie was not reacting to the current horror market when he made House of a Thousand Corpses. He was just making what he wanted to see. Yeah. And again, with Devil's Rejects, like, he's just making what he wants to see. Um, there's some movies where you can feel him phoning it in. That Halloween remake you can tell that he doesn't really care if it turns out good. He's just going to fuck around and see what mm-hmm. he can do. Um, Halloween 2 feels a little bit more like he's trying to make an actual movie. Um, but, like, he's usually only trying to serve himself. And I think I think he, I think when you look at just how outsized and violent and and just, like, gruesome and nasty, and, like, like the assault scene with the gun on Priscilla Barnes and everything, it's just, like, so upsetting and so yeah. gross. Like I think all it of that terrible. I think all of that comes from uh like just really uh, living in an extreme reality and that and I think it was the well, reason that's... why all of those movies were like I worked at Blockbuster uh when Saw 2 first came out on DVD like I, and it was just like it was just couples it was just mm-hmm. like everyone went and rented Saw 2 it wasn't weird horror uh, geeks who were seeing Saw 2 it was everybody yeah everybody went to see the movie where they jump into the syringe pit you know why because that's where our heads were at (laughs) well that's what's funny too is like thinking back as just dismissing this as like oh he just loves Toby Hooper and he loves Last House on the Left those movies were made post Vietnam exactly exactly Yeah, yeah. There's a there's an obvious correlation between the uh, quote unquote uh, hate the phrase, but it's it's the most useful phrase torture porn Mm -hmm. of the uh, because we were seeing what was going on in Abu Abu Ghraib or yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of that precedes it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I forget exactly when all the scandal with Abu Ghraib came out, but I think that was after some like yeah. I think it was after. Yeah. Well, okay, because because there's now I'm like trying to position it in my head just by based on other movies where I'm like there's an image in Children of Men that is a direct rip from some of those photographs so yeah. that means it happened at least before 2006 so maybe he is responding to that yeah um, I think so at any rate like movies like Hostel uh, mm-hmm. uh, oh, Hostel sure. much more pointedly so yeah, yeah, much yeah. more intentionally mm-hmm. much more thoughtfully that first the first two Hostel movies are not uh, the results of someone just sort of engaging their id. There's a lot more thought behind it. Yeah. Uh, in a way that uh, I don't think Rob Zombie is capable of. But it, nonetheless, his movies are still reflect reflections of the cultures that created them. I think, yeah, like in the same way with Eli Roth and his first couple of movies, maybe not so much Cabin Fever, but the, yeah, the first two Hostel movies, I was really like, ooh, uh, unnerved by, and I found him. Like I actually started thinking, like, oh, this is this guy's going to be a great horror director from this point forward. I was so on board. Yeah, and especially because he, was, especially I, because the chief chief thing I hated about all the horror of that era was that it was so much shaky handheld. Mm-hmm. And I think it works here. There's moments where, like, especially it's a little at, much. There's moments, there. especially at the end, where it's just like, well, there's just no tension because everything is too crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, there's certain, especially that first assault on the house where you see like the smoke and you see lights pouring through bullet holes mm-hmm. and the people moving in gas masks yep. in slow motion and like some of those images are fucking beautiful. I was shocked by. I was like. 
wait a minute, this is a western. This is like an action western to start this yeah. movie. I don't but know. It is, but it is a lot of... I'd sh- forgotten about Shaky that. handheld camera. It is a lot of coverage, mm-hmm. uh, which is just like... Rob Zombie comes from the world of music videos, and when you look at the way he shoots and edits his movies, he that's the music video mentality, is let's get a lot of footage and let's figure it out in, in the editing room. Sure. Uh, Eli Roth, very classical filmmaker i think even now i haven't seen uh the uh, death wish remake but like i've seen most of eli roth's movie yeah yeah but i've seen most of eli roth's movies he's very classical he's very intentional about how the camera's moving how it's edited yeah stuff like that so those first two hostile movies i was just like finally this is who we need and actually yeah yeah i think i felt felt similarly i think i had the same arc with eli roth that i did with uh mike flanagan where eventually like mike flanagan felt like Holy fuck! Finally, the someone who's coming. you know someone who you know in a in a world of like Adam Winger, where like your next is like propped up and as like Ty a great horror. I know you have and to Ty get West, that in there. Like the uh, like the the idea that Mike Flanagan's like, oh, he can actually write human beings and like for sure make you care about characters. Thank God, Mike Flanagan. And then eventually, I was just like, oh yeah, okay, he's doing the Mike Flanagan thing again. I'm done. I'm good. I like the Mike Flanagan thing. So yeah, I, I eventually I wore out. I by the end of uh, Haunting of Hill House, I was just like, I think I don't like Mike Flanagan anymore. I really mm. hate how that show ends. Um, I work with a librarian now who's huge into horror, and I said, you got to come on the podcast in October, and I'm going to let you choose between Mike Flanagan or James Wan, uh-huh. because those are the two she's very passionate yeah. about. So Probably two it'll of be the most important filmmakers in terms of influence. Yeah, like I James so. Wan is like like sneakily the most important horror filmmaker of the 21st century. Yeah. Like when you look at Saw and The Conjuring, it's for like sure. that's what horror has that's been what, for yeah. the past 20 years. Yeah. It's snuck into hereditary, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's it's all over. Yeah. Uh, and then and then of course Mike Flanagan is like the uh the blueprint for the A24. Uh it's actually about grief yeah. and trauma. Uh horror film. Like those are the two guys basically. And certainly the Netflix miniseries, all those things that he's doing is kind of yeah, that's those are huge with people now, and he's good with Stephen King adaptations. I, I think he, I think Mike Flanagan fits Stephen King because yeah. they are both middle brow as fuck. Like they are both <laughs> like the imaginations of Stephen King and the imaginations of Mike Flanagan is that the most important thing in this life as a human being is a family where there's a mommy, a daddy, a baby, and a house. Mm. <laughs> like, like, they're so yeah, fucking straight, middle-class, yeah, yeah. boring-as-fuck-like, heteronormative whatevers. And it's just like, that's fine. That's that's their point of view. We have other points that. of views. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they... You know, if, if it was a world of only Mike Flanagan's, it would drive me crazy. But, like, Mike Flanagan do what he wants. It's just... That was the thing, eventually, that I was just like, oh, God, you, you are... You're... You're... you're understanding like eventually for an auteur for like a horror artist i want them to have that cronenberg big picture what are we as people vision that (laughs) west craven (laughs) thing you know and i just think like mike flanagan doesn't have those thoughts and stephen king is the same way stephen king oh he's very insanely talented very limited yeah i agree i agree but like yeah, every once in a while, all the elements work. Yeah. And then once in a while, you get Dreamcatcher, you know, where it's like nothing really works, but I'm still strangely entertained. Do I want to watch Dreamcatcher or uh, the Midnight Mass? I'm going to say I will watch Dreamcatcher. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a bit where my, my where my head is at right now. Well, Dreamcatcher's shorter. <laughs> yeah. But no, it, I understand. That makes sense. But I, yeah, I, I still don't know if the Freebird ending entirely works for it's, it's that thing you were it's, saying about where it's like he knows where it needs to get, which is Bonnie and Clyde at the solo. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that means that we need five minutes of home movies. And it's just like, 
That's right. silly. <laughs> I am I am very impressed. Considering this is Lionsgate, this is not Universal now. This mm-hmm. is a budget that is. I think it's fifteen million is what he made this movie for. Yeah. I could be I could be wrong, but I believe that House was thirty and that Devils was half because that was like a big point of that of like something that really I found impressive about Devils Rejects is it looks twice as good and it was made for half the money. Um, I am so impressed at the soundtrack he got. I don't know if it's just like he has connections to the music industry or if he just like saved money every single other place so he could get reeling in the years. But like, it is so impressive. And yeah. he, you know, it's he, like listening to the classic rock radio station. And there's a couple of folk songs. I've, I wrote down the artist. I forget the name of this artist yeah, that plays over the some... end credits and the part where the bounty hunters capture them. Um mm. No, I, I didn't. I didn't write it down. But at any rate, uh, I'm sorry, but I just I have uh, <laughs> because Gordon Lightfoot recently passed, and I, I posted a, a video on my Facebook wall of Rick Moranis as Gordon Lightfoot and singing every song ever recorded as Gordon Lightfoot. It's like an infomercial. Okay. Gordon Lightfoot, Canada's most incredible singer. I got married to the widow next door. Kate Talon introduces, Gord sings every song ever written. A remarkable 379 album set, complete with music and lyrics, so you can sing along as Gord sings every song ever written. You get Midnight in Moscow, Bits and Pieces, and Happy Birthday! And now for the first time, a special offer of unreleased Gord Lightfoot versions of some of the great songs of all time. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast You get the Soviet National Anthem, Polka Time, Jesus Joy of Man's Desiring, and of course, Gord's own 76 trombones. 76 trombones, let the big Gord Lightfoot, a legend in Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Just in my head. My only, my only <laughs> Gordon Lightfoot horror connection is that the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald was ripped off for the theme song for My Bloody Valentine. Go listen to those two back to back. And the dinner they say on a Valentine's Day was a dinner that blew on and on. Wow. Once upon a time, on a sad Valentine, in a place known as Hannigan Mine, a legend began. Every woman and man would always remember the time. Very funny that they just did a ripoff of uh, Wreck of the Edmonds Fair Cheryl. But at any rate... Rest um, in peace, Gordon Lightfoot. Um, yeah, Devil's Rejects is just like, sometimes things align up. And he just, he never got that again. Um, again, really recommend 30 Days of Hell. Like, it's just like such a fun... If you are a dork like me, and you do like just knowing what it was like shooting on that day and how they did this special effect or whatever, like every single question answered. Uh, that documentary is really cool. I feel like I have to be a bigger Rob Zombie fan to really be appreciative. That makes of it. sense. A lot of it, a lot of it is people talking about how, what a genius Rob Zombie is. And that could be pretty grating. Yeah. You know, it's, it, you know, but apparently it was just like an amazing shoot. Uh, the, the other interesting tidbit I got from that was like part of Rob Zombie as a film, like why Rob Zombie the dude who goes, which is just like half of the songs he's ever written. We should have covered a Rob Zombie. Half of the songs he's ever written. is just like, um, like the, the reason that guy was able to like lead film productions is because he, uh, transferred the knowledge he did from like touring and like, stage shows and stuff like that like he has hmm. to get everyone on the same page there because they yeah. had this like because that was I can like see what that, that, white zombie that and rob zombie were really well known for yeah 
was like in an era of like really self-serious grunge acts or whatever. They were out there doing, you know, Kiss and Alice Cooper shit. Um, and like apparently like just everyone on the crew, everyone in the cast, they were all just like fucking thrilled to be making that movie and all had great things to say about like how the shoot went. And you see him interacting with every single department and he's just like. And, and they all have the same thing to say, which is he knows exactly what he wants, but he doesn't micromanage. He lets you do your thing. And it was just like, oh, you know, OK. Uh, apparently Rob Zombie in this movie just like was dead on with exact like this is what I'm doing. This is what I want. Cool. Got it. And uh, just never happened again. So he's not a nihilistic dick. No, I think I he's just... a dick. I think he's a dick, but I think like you got to make a movie, and your movie's going to be worse if you're a dick to the union people who well, <laughs> you yeah. pay to make your movie. Yeah. No, you got to um, be cool. I my my vibe on Rob Zombie is that he mostly just wants to hang out with his wife and be left alone. And so, like, he seems like he doesn't have much interest in being like friendly and gregarious and charming. He's just sort of yeah, yeah, whatever. Da da da. Uh, like, it's, I love see interviews it's like with him Clint Eastwood who just wants to get to the golf course yeah exactly you know, um, he's he's happy to make a movie but he's yeah he leaves his work at work yeah but Rob Zombie is not a Gasper No snorting cocaine so he can make uh, uh, irreversible or whatever it's not like and the madness crept onto the film set and his genius was about how he was all Dennis Hopper it's like no 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 he was just like very professional and yeah uh, that's what I hear about Joaquin Phoenix. Just like he just becomes madness all the does time. Does he? Yeah. Oh, that sounds annoying. It, uh, yeah. I've, yeah. It's funny because, like, I, I kind of wanted to uh, delve deeper into that with Kevin J. O'Connor, who was, uh, you know, I interviewed him and he right. was in There Will Be Blood, but he's just like, eh, just leave it at that. Because <laughs> it's clear that, yeah, he can, he can be kind of a dick yeah. on set. Um, but I. If Devil's Rejects got like a half star or a one star before, it's up to a 3.5. Nice. And again, I still have issues with it. Yeah. They're not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and I wish it had a different ending. And I mean, he lets that song play out so long. <laughs> I don't know. The other, the other uh, thing about this movie, and especially that ending, is that it's just like, it just is not, it's not an era that's kind to the digital squibs. Yep. <laughs> yep. So it's like, not this movie. Maybe you watch a Fast and the Furious movie from this era and you see a digital squib or whatever. Like, you could, you know, maybe Casino Royale has some dis dis digital squibs that work. Like, not fucking Devil's Rejects, Lionsgate Presents. Like, yeah. these do not look good. I would say that I probably would have liked this movie way more if it had been in place of Planet Terror for Grindhouse. Yeah. Like, if those two movies would have played back to back. I think I would have loved. Well, it. the other thing about Devil's Rejects that you, because it's it, I think the pacing is so great. Like, yeah, it's it's long, it's almost two hours. I you wouldn't know it. I, yeah, I, it flew by. The it really did. The transitions are so tight most of the time. But like, yeah, I I I think in a double feature it would not. It would have to be cut down severely. Mm -hmm. But yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I think so. I think the balance for me personally, Grindhouse is you need the balance of the Robert Rodriguez thing to tee up the uh, Quentin Tarantino thing. I think the Tarantino thing has more weight, and mm. I think it. I think that weight works because it's following that feels so weightless and just yeah. feels so fake, and it's like clearly it's Robert Rodriguez making another movie in his garage. Uh, <laughs> I think. Um, I think Otis or uh, yeah, Bill Mosley in this. He misquotes Manson, doesn't he? Or not Manson, but one of the Manson people, where he says, "I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's work." Is he that a misquote? I think it is. I th I think he says something different. 
And I was just like, oh, because I remember, obviously, that's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood towards mm-hmm. the end as well. Yeah, but. well, a man, uh, Rob Zombie is one of those Gen X guys who thinks of Charles Manson as like a countercultural figure. Mm-hmm. He's, he's like one of those, like, like literally in Halloween. He two, made great folk songs. <laughs> Stupid. There's some people who think that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You, we don't. We don't have to listen to everything Henry Rollins says. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> um, uh, in Halloween two, after nearly being murdered by a serial killer and barely escaping with her life, Lori has a big giant photo of Charles Manson above her bed. It's like hmm. I don't know. If, I don't know. If, I mean. Granted, people work out through their trauma and through weird shit. Like, sometimes you reenact the trauma, and, like, maybe that's what he's going for in that movie. But also, it's like, maybe this isn't the place for your fucking Charles Manson worship. I am planning on rewatching Halloween 2 because every review I read was like, well, The Devil's Rejects is great, but Halloween 2 is actually his masterpiece. And everybody's like... I mean, I heard that when it was coming, when it came, first came out, that like, oh, it's secretly an amazing work the, of art. The funny thing about Halloween too is that it is the second Halloween movie, and not by any means the last Halloween movie, David Gordon Green, to actually be about trauma. Mm-hmm. It is a movie that's actually about trauma. When you think of this, you might think it's about a man in a mask and a butcher's knife, but really it's trauma. And it's like, sure, guess what? That's sure. H2O, and that's all the David Gordon Green it's movies. It's definitely H2O. Guess what? Guess what? Guess what topic Rob Zombie maybe doesn't have the finest grasp mm, of? I wonder what that could be. Uh, Halloween Two is a very interesting movie. That's what everybody says, it's, and it's I, I hated that his, too. It is not his masterpiece. Okay. The thing. Okay. The Halloween it starts movies, off with a dream sequence. I remember being like, "What the?" F- the what? Halloween movie, the first Halloween remake, horrible, horrible, horrible first twenty minutes. Eventually, once he actually starts remaking Halloween, it gets kind of interesting because hmm. it because it, it is there is a reading of Halloween where Michael Myers is someone who had a traumatic childhood growing up and him as this like wrecking ball of Frankenstein brutality like smashing through walls and doors and like crushing people's heads and everything in the suburbs is like there's just moments of suburban stillness that counterbalance the extreme violence that it's like, it feels just like this total expression of rage that of what happened to him in a way that is not true in any other Halloween movie. There's other Halloween movies that try to get to the psychology of Michael Myers or why he's doing it for whatever reason. That's the only, the Rob Zombie's the only one where I actually feel like Michael Myers has a point of view. Um, that said, I don't need to know his backstory. No, you don't. You don't exactly. And it, and there's just like miles of bullshit you have to wade through to get to those little nuggets. So Halloween two has some of the again 16 millimeter beautiful photography. Um, just some moments where you're just like, God damn, this is. Uh, there's no other movies that look like this. It, even though all these other movies tried to look like this, Rob Zombie, <laughs> another influential guy who a lot of people imitated poorly. Um, Halloween two, not a good movie, I would say. Okay, but. I- if you want to watch it, I have the Blu-ray. I'm curious. I can I can hook you up. I don't know why I'm curious. Maybe it's because I'm like, oh, Devil's Rejects is right. so bad. But learning new things, expanding your horizons. Speaking of, I don't know. I still I'm gonna say one thing, one thing, one thing. Go ahead. And you know, again, this is not a popular thing to say, but I just I only want one Halloween movie, the original. I, That's all. That's all I want. I think you have I don't your need people. It. I, I think you have your people. I don't think I needed any other Halloween movie ever. 
I uh, I mean, there's elements of each, I guess. Of that, many. I, there's some that have no redeeming qualities. Yeah. You don't but need I to wasn't watch crazy about I wasn't crazy about David Gordon Green's. And yeah. You liked, did you like the last one? You did, didn't you? I I was cackling through the last okay. one. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it was effective in, in telling a story. Yeah. But I thought it was effective in being batshit crazy. And so I appreciated that. Um, didn't you say you thought of it as like his my soul to take? Yes. Okay. My soul to take is better, by the way. Yeah. That movie is fucking hysterical. But it, it is just like every five minutes in Halloween ends, something happens that I'm like, why? Why do you think that would work? That's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, okay. Well. But uh, but I like all the Halloween movies uh, because I'm stupid. <laughs> Mostly because I'm pretty stupid. Uh, no, I, you find things to appreciate I'm also, I'm just about like a, them. I'm a slasher guy, and Halloween is a, like just down the middle meat and potatoes slasher movies for more than 50% of them. I think I want more than just meat and potatoes on my plate. I need some veggies and a side and, you know, that well, some yeah, the problem the problem is David Gordon Green thought he was giving you so many veggies mm. with no, the he wasn't. with all of the important thematic content. I see. All of the well, uh, think pieces he was serving up to you. I feel like I was getting a lot of different sides with Nightmare on Elm Street movies where it was just like the dream sequences are sides you know there's just yeah. I'm excited to see what this dream sequence is going to be and I'll even you know Friday the 13th Friday the okay. 13th is McDonald's yeah <laughs> right and sometimes that's fine. you want a there's, quarter pounder yeah there's that's no I appreciate that sometimes you're too tired to cook you Some, know uh, Nightmare on Elm Street feels like a candy store to me where it's yeah. just like the gifts in the form, if you if you are so enthusiast of makeup and special effects or whatever, mm-hmm. all the gifts that they give you. There's <laughs> shit in, I've seen Dream Warriors like 40 times. Every time I watch it, I go, oh, fuck, I forgot about that gag. Yeah. There are so it's much so fucking good. special effects in that movie. But mm-hmm. even like A Nightmare on Elm Street 5 has a ton of shit that you're like, they did the Take On Me music video. With Pretty much. Unbelievable. Yeah. Super I, Freddy. Why aren't they making more Freddy movies? I mean, I guess they could be terrible. But I, I think they're going to do a TV series. It was oh. the last thing. I, I think I hmm. I think it's difficult to get the tone right because no one has ever successfully made a new Nightmare on Elm Street movie in twenty years. Oh no! You know what I mean? Yeah, that and, one with and Rooney Mara was awful. Right. No one liked that. Yeah. Uh, and I think Freddy versus Jason was a spectacle, but it wasn't a Friday a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. So it's probably longer than twenty years. No one. Uh, went and saw New Nightmare when that came out. Freddy's Dead got horrible reviews. So, like, you think about it, it's just like uh, the right person hasn't pitched to the right executive, here's how we're going to translate this to modern audiences. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, a guy with a knife is scary. And a guy with a knife chasing you is scary now. And a guy with a knife chasing you is scary. In the Are 80s. they going to bring back Friday the 13th like the, what they've done with Halloween? Yeah, there was legal problems oh, with that. Where, right. where Victor Miller, who created the character of Jason Voorhees, but... It was a whole thing. Okay. I think that all got settled recently, and mm-hmm. Friday the 13th will be coming back in some way. That remake of Friday the 13th, I'm a, I'm a broken record mm-hmm. on that remake of Friday the 13th. Uh, big thumbs up from me. Listen to Tracks I'm... of the Dam to hear all of my <laughs> thoughts. I'm curious to revisit that and maybe even the Texas Chainsaw remake. There's stuff about Texas Chainsaw. Re- she, he starts chasing her through the through the laundry, those like bed sheets hanging up on the uh, hmm. clothespins or whatever. Like there's some images in that new uh, on, in that uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, I should say, not the new one. I am tempted to go to my list on Letterbox of like I consider bad, horrible, worst movies I've yeah. ever seen and seeing like. 
do I really think this is one of the worst movies I've ever seen? I mean, that's one of the reasons, too, why I'm doing the Substack thing. It's like, do I really think this is an amazing masterpiece, right. all-time great movie or not? Right. It's, it's time. I guess maybe like... You got to give Joker another chance, Jim. I don't think I'm going to go that. No, I'm I not going to go that it. far. I, I, unfortunately, audience, you did not get to see the face he oh. made, but I got to see the face he made, and that made it worth it to say it. Well, who knows? Maybe in 12 years, I'll be like, oh, Joker's a masterpiece. Who knew? No, no I, don't, I don't think so. It's Todd Phillips. He can't do good. I, I Oh, God, I sounded like how I did with the Rob Zombie episode. Rob Zombie sucks. Yeah. yeah. So maybe Todd Phillips secretly is a great director, and I'm just not seeing it right now at this point in time. Talk to me in 12 years. We'll have to do another episode. We got, we better commit. Uh-huh. In 12 years. Yeah. Todd Phillips. We're going to reevaluate. Folks, we're not going to be alive in 12 years. This is Aww. all fairy dust. Fugazi you said that 12 years ago, though. That's true. That's <laughs> Surprise. True. Life is surprising. Speaking of surprises. Yeah. Sofia Coppola made a film. I'm surprised we ever stopped talking about Devil's Rejects. <laughs> well, I think I was pleasantly surprised that um i didn't dislike it as much as i thought i would right but you know somewhere is an interesting film ten decisions shape your life you'll be aware of five about seven ways to go to school either you This is only my third time seeing it, and I hadn't seen it in a, I don't know, maybe maybe 10 years or so. I mean, I watched it when I in theaters when it first came out. Then I probably watched it again a couple years later. I was like, yeah, it's all right. I like it. I do really like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I really, really like it now, but I, there's a lot I appreciate about it. So it's very similar ratings for me for both movies. It turns out these movies are equals in your mind. More or less. Like they're they're flawed. Yeah. But I still kind of like them. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this too because I recently just did a, a podcast on Bo is Afraid. And I finally saw more of what your uh, concerns are <laughs> about Ari Aster as a director. Because, like, when I watched Hereditary and I watched Midsummer and I watched Bo is Afraid, I'm like, these aren't human beings. They're totally defined by their trauma. Yeah. That's all. Like, and I was kind of like, are those really characters? Are they, are they well-written people? Am I just, like, feeling empathy for them because they've been traumatized? Yeah, and, and to, be, to, be, to be fair to Ari Aster, realism is not a prerequisite no, for no, 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 no. writing movies for you know, performances, anything like, and I bring this up because Stephen Dorff's character, I don't know his inner life. I don't know his history. Yeah. I don't know his backstory. All I know is that he's just a lonely Hollywood actor that is, 
going through some serious depression. <laughs> and, you know, maybe the first time I saw it, I was just like, oh, man, I've been depressed. Yeah. <laughs> and that was all. Like, that's all it took for me to say, this is a great movie. I think it's a pretty good movie. I don't know if I would lump it up as, like, I mean, I... I yeah, you I, consider yourself a Sofia Coppola I do. Fan. I do. I... I, but I'm, I'm like, even on the rocks, I was just like, eh. There's a couple of her movies I'm like, that, in the middle on. Yeah. Eh, it was all right. Bling, Bling Ring? I like Bling Ring. Okay. Yeah. So you I don't would know. Say, she seems to do the good, like, yeah, capturing the. the, the, the so for vanity. you, it's like Virgin Suicides, Lost in Translation, Marie Antoinette, Bling Ring. Yeah. Is like sort of the top tier. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, would, I would say so. I mean, somewhere Bling Ring kind of interchangeable. Okay. Um, I. I just I love it when Elle Fanning shows up. I really do. I like their relationship together. I like I like their vibe. I like because he seems to come to life more. He just I don't know. It, it, I did sense the repetition um, getting to me. Like, do we need two stripper scenes? You know, like I get it with the one stripper scene. Okay, <laughs> you know i I get where she's going with the opening. I don't think the ending is very successful. Um, so it like. It works for me in fits and starts. It works for me in moments. I think anytime, and I'm curious to go back to even Lost in Translation, anytime she's using music, I'm like so into it. I think she's great at using music. Like just, there are sequences in this. There's one to, to a stroke song and um, the, the, the Gwen Stefani song when she's ice skating. I like that. I think she could... I don't know if she ever made a bunch of music videos. I wouldn't be surprised, but that's, I think she just does I mean, really she, well. You know, with she, that. she existed in that world. She was married to uh, Spike Jones and yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. she, and she's married a, to a musician. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I anytime like a, a song comes on and there's like a little, it's almost like the opposite of Rob Zombie. We're like, I love watching music sequences in Sofia Coppola movies. I just, there's something about it. There's, they're very dreamy and you know, uh, but in terms of the characters, in terms of Stephen Dorff's character, I don't feel a lot of connection towards mm -hmm. him in any way. Uh, and I think having them like play Guitar Hero to a song, to the police song, so lonely, so lonely. I'm like, I get it. The dude's lonely. You know, there's like things like that that are very heavy handed that yeah. I just kind of go. I get Whoa. it. He's a 20th century boy. That's the, <laughs> that's the next song they play on, on Guitar right. Hero. Yeah, you got it. Um, he's okay, but he's not great in this, I don't think. Um, but I, I overall still like it. I mm -hmm. wouldn't say, I, I mean, the first time I saw it, I thought I loved everything about it, and I loved every like. I, my big defense was like, "Oh, it's such a great movie where nothing happens, and that's interesting." Um, I, I, I got a little restless a little bit here and there. Yeah, yeah. But I'm curious to see what you think of it twelve years later, because mine just went down just a little bit. Right. So I, I really. Um was I really did not like this movie. I don't think I thought it was like a piece of shit. I don't think it's like I thought it was like a half star Rob Zombie like like just start flinching. But I really didn't think there was anything to it. And I really thought it was just like, what if we made a boring movie about a guy who's bored, which is never a good approach to filmmaking or whatever. Um, I would say that I accurately assessed this movie the first time. However, I the reason I was excited to do this podcast is because I've always had a long-standing uh, belief 
No one should go back and listen to our old episodes. I know we we did we we disagree on this. I really think that they're they're terrible and that it's terrible film criticism. And I don't stand by the things I said. And I but I think people are able to put that in context, knowing that we were younger then. It's possible they are. They do. It's possible they don't. Either way, that's always been my like. Oh yeah, don't go back and listen. Oh, this is terrible. My my takedown of this movie back in the day was like just garbage. It was just like, it, it, there was there was no substance no to my argument. Qualities, yeah. I actually now look at this movie and I understand what it's doing. There is a thing it's doing that is interesting. And it is interesting. Um, but like, specifically, you didn't, you haven't mentioned it. So I wonder if, if this is a, something you picked up on or whatever. Um, it's specifically about the way he treats women in the movie. Yes. And it's about how he goes to bed with a woman um, falls asleep while he's going down on her. And then he gets w- woken up by another blonde, but in this case, it's his 11-year-old daughter. daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the scene previous, we see the strippers uh, doing a pole dance where they're all, like, all dressed up in, like, tiny little mini skirts because they're, like, doing a tennis routine or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, after his daughter wakes him up, they go and they drive, and then she does a routine as an ice skater. Yep. And she's wearing a tiny little mini there's a, skirt. There's a contrast a, there. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. And he goes, "Yeah, you're really good. Uh, how long have you been doing?" And she's like, "I've been doing it three years." <laughs> and it's just like he clearly doesn't give a fuck about her ice skating. Yeah. But but how could he not? Know? He he applauds and he's he's very encouraging and like, "Oh wow, you're doing so great" or whatever. It's bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's bullshit. It's a performance. Um, it so there is a connection there where. There is the text of the movie pretty much Mm -hmm. is that he is a womanizer who makes no meaningful relations with the women that he has sex with. Clearly. Um, They are just sort of convenient uh, people to have sex with. And some of them accept that role in their life. And then some of them, you know, are mad at him because, you know, he led them on emotionally. He doesn't care either way, whether it's a girl he's hooking up with at a party or the Italian woman who comes up to him in the hotel lobby who... As soon as after they sleep together, she starts trying to like be the mother to Elle Fanning. And she's just like, when I was young, I had a boy and I thought he was so cute. Elle Fanning's so good in that scene. Like, yeah, yeah, she's the great. evil eyes. Elle Fanning across the board. Very good. Yeah. So, like, the text of the movie, it's pretty much, it's not subtext. It's not implied. It is explicitly like, this is a guy who does not respect the women that he has sex with. Mm-hmm. The subtext is that he probably is actually the same with his daughter. Like, probably, actually, they're what genuine moments of real connection he has with her you that you perceive because this is the kind of movie where the guy who works too much realizes he just needs to get with his kids. Actually, that's bullshit. That yeah. is a performance as well. Yeah. You see the easy, natural uh, sort of rapport that she has with Chris Pontius. And it's like that is so contrasted to him just sort of standing around playing guitar yeah. hero. So I I'm think, frustrated that there's no arc with him at all. Well, I I think that like I I feel like if he just had two weeks or whatever where he got to spend with his daughter, not just a day where his mom where her mom drops her off and then he drops her back off at her mom's, and they had an actual connection, then her leaving for camp is like she'll be back in a couple weeks. He's gonna be back to pick her up. It's not a catastrophe, mm-hmm. but instead he breaks down. He realizes that he is just like totally empty. Yeah. I think that I wish reason, I felt I, something. In I that think moment. the reason he breaks down is because he doesn't give a fuck about his daughter. I mm. think this is a movie about a guy who does not actually give a fuck about, about his women. daughter, about women, 
about women in general. Yeah. But like the specific con- the specific way Sofia Coppola equates one with the other mm-hmm. is like this is a movie about he has no human connections to anyone. And even what you have projected as an honest connection is revealed to be false because he is just that empty. Yeah. Um, that yeah. is interesting. The problem with that is that is a subtle thing. And Stephen Dorff, like, as you brought up, not a good actor. No. The the chief asset Stephen Dorff has in this movie is that he looks like Kiefer Sutherland. And I think this is supposed to be Kiefer Sutherland. Like, my understanding of who Kiefer Sutherland is in Hollywood is that he is just sort of like a functioning alcoholic who like goes through life with people kissing his ass and makes no connections to people. Hmm. That's just like stories I've heard or whatever. So whenever I watch this movie, I just see him as like Kiefer Sutherland. I just replace Kiefer Sutherland's career onto Stephen Dorff. Okay. I just, I just think of Johnny. I mean, he's Johnny, so it could be Johnny Depp, but I feel like he's not as successful as Johnny Depp would be in 2010. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Johnny Depp in 2010 is buying islands. That's not uh, <laughs> Stephen Dorff. Stephen Dorff's rich, but he's not Johnny Depp rich. Mm-hmm. So in my head, I'm like, okay, it works because he looks just like Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. <laughs> so he works as a stand-in for Kiefer Sutherland. I just kind of wrote this movie off as just like oh it's the it's like a distillation of loneliness it's just somebody who's lost and disconnected and so much of this movie movie is about that is about the emptiness of hollywood and like for me that stuff is all like yeah who cares but we've done that a lot it's so much Every yeah, I, every satire of Hollywood is about how vapid and shallow. And da, 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 da. Who gives yeah. a fuck? You need a really compelling actor and a fully realized yeah. character to really grab onto. The the, but, the performances that he is giving. The only thing that actually works about Stephen Dorff is that because he is not a good actor, um, when he is like when the car breaks down and they have to get it towed or whatever, he's like, oh, what? Oh, damn it. And it just sounds like a guy who's performing. And like, so throughout the movie, when he's saying things to her, when he's trying to do the thing a dad was, when he's making that face where he's like, let's get two of each gelato. Right. Like, you don't, it doesn't really feel natural, but also it isn't natural for that character. He's always acting. That works. He's always acting. Yeah. So like, that does work in terms of casting. The problem is you need to see the other aspect behind it, and you don't. Right. Because um, I don't care that he's right at the very end, maybe walking towards rede- redemption. Because I, I don't buy. Like, what is the final shot supposed to say? Like, I was going to ask you, what do you. What what do you? If you had to make a guess about what happens to him after. One, where is he? Where did I, th- he, I feel is like he she's just trying to, to end it on a hopeful note, but it doesn't work. Like, I don't. Like, I like don't buy Ferrari it. is the sort like of he's just the leaving, chains of yeah. his old life and his wealth and everything, yeah. and he's leaving it behind. He's walking and towards he is something better. For- Forrest Gump running across the country, <laughs> leave, leaving all of his possessions uh, and, and being reborn spiritually. Like that. That is that sort of how you read what she's saying. But yeah, I do. But I, where's the like lead up to that? I think he's committing suicide. Okay. I think he's finally free. I think that's what the smile is. Is he's just like, oh fuck, I don't have to worry about that. Oh. Um. Like, yeah. Well, that's I like. That's... I I don't think if there was a spiritual awakening, then there wouldn't be a. Why don't you? I feel I don't like know, the why music start... and the smile just makes me go like, okay, it's supposed to be uplifting. It could be. It could be. That's not. I I mean, which again, I don't buy again. I don't. I I'm right where I was before in terms of how well does this work as a movie? Yeah, because I just don't believe that Sofia Coppola has a lot of depth. 
Like, I think Lost in Translation works because it is a fun fantasy. It is like, what if you were stuck in the coolest city and the coolest guy in the world chose you and said, you're going to be my best friend for the next week? <laughs> like, that's just fantasy. There's no hard truths mm-hmm. in Lost in Translation. All of the stuff where she tries to reach and say something about loneliness fucking sucks. All the stuff she has to say about like cultural displacement where everyone is off putting. By the way, lot a lot of somewhere feels like reheated lost in translation. Yeah. It All does. the stuff in Italy. The um masseuse, the massage guy. The masseuse shit is so lame. It's so bad. It's so bad. Like there's no version of this guy who is just like Oh, you seem surprised and put off that I'm not the woman that you normally get, but you're probably, I'm just going to take all my clothes off without warning you. Uh-huh. Like, like clearly this guy doesn't know what's up. So later he's like, oh, I thought you knew. I always take, I always get naked when the guy gets naked. Like, that's just like bullshit. And the thing, okay. His reaction. So <laughs> let's, let's go, let's go big picture here. Mm-hmm. Sophia Coppola as an artist, the big ding against her is always that. She is a rich girl who makes stories yep. about privileged yep. rich people and who cares. And like you can make stories about rich people that are fucking great. You can make stories about kings. You can They're make doing it with succession right now where I actually care about these go. rich p- privileged people. There you go. So like it's that's not that's not an you know uh uh unforgivable sin. Right. The thing about Sofia Coppola, the thing that really stinks of like you fucking rich asshole whenever I watch her movies is that she paints these worlds where everyone around you who just like comes into your life, usually service workers because you're rich and most of the people you interact with are service workers, they either are professional and do their job and stay out of your way or they're the most off-putting, irritating, annoying, like pushing themselves on you version, like everything. Yeah, and she can't, I can see that. She can't picture the two pole dancers actually being good at pole dancing. They have to be shitty and terrible pole dancers. Mm-hmm. The masseuse has to be like the worst fucking masseuse you've ever seen. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like all the people, like, and it's just like, that's how rich people view the world is that like everyone around them either does, makes their life easier mm-hmm. or is a pain in the ass. They don't view other people as human beings. Things. If yeah, they yeah, did, yeah. they'd get rid of their fucking money. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're right. So, like, that's really the thing when you watch the... And, of course, like... But Stephen Dorff isn't a human being in this movie, practically. Well, no, but he... You do... I do think you get insight into his psychology in terms of... Uh, just in terms of again how the how the his the way he treats women yeah. is mirrored. Yeah. You get insight into just how empty a person he is. That that at least is insight. Right. Chris Pontius's character has insight. Uh, Elle Fanning has insight. These are the three human beings in the movie, mm-hmm. and everyone else just serves to be irritating and obnoxious. And even the people who are like uh, kissing their ass, or even like he can't have the guy at the hotel with the guitar actually be. And she can't have. The guy with the ho- at the hotel with the guitar actually know how to play a guitar and sing. Like he has mm. to do this like weird off putting. Like he keeps strumming incorrectly and yeah. he's singing this weird song and he has a terrible voice. Like everything, it always has to be that with her. And it's just because like that's she's uh, um, the. Uh, it makes me want to watch Lost in Translation because I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right about like every interaction with a side character is that portrayal, right? And it's. Yeah, I get that that is kind of annoying. But it's like I mean, I I like some movies for very surface level reasons. Sure. You know, I mean just 
Like, oh, I like these actors. Oh, yeah. I like the use of music. She oh, has I mean, good just, taste in music, for yeah, sure. Yeah, no, for sure. And I really like Elle Fanning. And, Elle Fanning is good. Know. Like, I, I don't know a lot of directors. Their first instinct would be to cast Chris Pontius, but, like, that's, a, that's an inspired choice. That <laughs> no, works. yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. No, he's great in this, too. It's it's nice to see him not be a jackass. It's, well, uh. it's, what, but what's funny is it does leverage his personality in Jackass mm-hmm. because... The reason he gets along so well with Elle Fanning is because he's just, like, this party guy, goofball, whatever. Yeah. But also, like, when Stephen Dorff is so drunk that he falls down the stairs and breaks his arm, what Chris Pontius's reaction is is, that was funny. Yeah. And it's like, okay, this is a guy who yeah. his buddy, he's hit the jackpot because his best friend growing up is super rich and famous. Mm-hmm. And... It has so many women throwing themselves at him that he can't even handle them all. And so, like, being his buddy from home from his hometown, who, quote-unquote, keeps him rooted the in the, yeah. like, the entourage tradition or whatever, like, being that guy, Steven Dorff's that guy, who you just, like, I'm just going to throw a party at his apartment. He's not going to say anything. Um, like, that's a fucking cushy gig. He sure. is a total hanger-on and a leech. He is not yeah. having a conversation about his alcoholism. He is not telling him... Hey man, you didn't realize that your daughter was doing it? like like maybe we need to re- you know like he's not having those conversations because then his meal ticket goes away right so like that like there that is seems pretty about, accurate to Hollywood yeah stars. and there's but there's something about like Chris Pontius being just like not having that integrity that uh-huh. like it it suits the sort of like. When he falls down the stairs and breaks his arm and he starts laughing, it's like, oh, well, that's the guy from Jackass. <laughs> like, I've, seen, I've seen a Jackass movie. You yeah. fall down the stairs and break your arm and the guy, they all start laughing. Well, I, I've talked to, you know, certainly about Rob Zombie and like, oh, he loves this. He loves that. He's very influenced by, you know, things that I love. I feel like, you know, Coppola deciding to work with Gus Van Sant's uh, cinematographer here, like this is kind of her cover version of what he was doing with Jerry and I want to talk to you about this. So I am preparing for an episode of director's club on Simon Liang, Taiwanese director, uh, probably along with, uh, uncle Joe, the, uh, you know, uncle boot uh, director. Yes. Those two are probably the most visible, uh, sort of, uh, auteurs of quote unquote, slow cinema, cinema, which is, a weird thing that's not actually a movement and it's a bunch of different artists who critics have lumped together and it's like do you think that Tarkovsky was really like I better do what Ozu did or do you think Tarkovsky was doing his own thing probably yeah. Tarkovsky was doing his own thing well Bellatar Bellatar yeah, yeah, you yeah. know like so it's like it doesn't feel like a movement properly right. or whatever but at any rate there happy is... Memorial Day here's uh, uh, your episode on uh, Simon Liang so, that's the plan um, the, <laughs> so the issue with uh, the term slow cinema is that slow is so object, uh, subjective like I watched uh, um, uh, Wirk, Wirkmeister Harmonies I don't exactly it's oh, Hungarian Rec? is it Rec? Wreckmeister Harmonies I, I think it might be W-E-R instead of okay. W at any rate I watched the Bellatar movie slow cinema it's a movie that is over two hours long and is done in 39 shots, so it's a lot of extremely long takes. Um, I found that much less slow than something like Green Knight just because I found it more interesting than Green Knight. And if you're not interested in something, then it's going to start to feel slow. Yeah. And if you are interested, it will feel less slow. So People, it's like, people hate Skinamarink because they don't find it interesting. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Skinamarink, is it slow cinema? It, maybe. But like it's, it's totally subjective. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, one... Before the first time you saw this movie in 2010 or in 2011, 
Um, Didn't see a lot of slow cinema. It and so like this is a this is a movie that would be among the slower films that you had ever seen and yeah. enjoyed. You'd seen some Gus Van Sant. I'm oh sure, sure. sure. Um, but like you hadn't you hadn't seen Bellatar. You hadn't seen Tarkovsky. No, no. Okay, so. In the time from then to now, I know for a fact that you're a fan of Wavelength. You want to talk about fucking <laughs> slow movies? Michael yes. Snow's Wavelength. Oh, uh, we're both I found it hypnotic. We're both Wavelength sickos. Uh, yeah. On the director on Directors Club here. What what has been your experience with slow cinema? And do you think of yourself as a fan of I, slow cinema? I've definitely grown into one over time. To where I'm like, yeah, so one of these days I'm going to tackle, uh, what's the longest Bellatar movie? It's like an eight oh, hours Santa long. Oh, Tango? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the DVD. We can okay. we can make a we can make a, a couple oh, of dates. Wow. We'll spread it across a couple days or whatever. Oh, no, let's just let's just go for it. Yeah, let's I go for it. I think the Siskel Center did that, right? Like they had... They had some breaks. Yeah. It's episodic, so it's okay. we can... Yeah, there yeah, are built-in yeah. bathroom breaks if we oh, need okay. them. Yeah, but I'm... I would say yes. I mean, as somebody who really liked Cemetery of Splendor and... Most of his films overall. I mean, there's still a lot I need to see, but um, Uncle Joe I'm talking about, of course. I, I think watching Somewhere I'm Now, I'm like, it's not slow. I mean, there, there's long takes. And there's like, you know, he's sitting in that chair getting his face molded or whatever in the plaster. That's just a long shot that just holds there. You know, yeah. I mean, but I still feel like this moves more right. or less. You know, I mean, I... It's very different compared to the types. Like it's cl- it's it's also clear to me that Sofia Coppola loves Chantal Ackerman, and mm. is trying to adopt that style a little bit into into her film, you know. But it's like I think it's just uh, it's so muted that I I can't necessarily feel a sense of like emotional attachment to what's going on. And I feel that that's bad for me. Like for me, that's kind of one of the reasons why I love a movie. But my first experience with this was like, I hadn't seen anything like this, but now I've seen a lot of films that are do this way better. Yeah. So So that I saw lost in translation in high school. And that was like, oh my gosh, this is such an exciting like that was yeah. that was the era of indie movie. That was the focused picture uh, features like uh, Eternal Sunshine, sure, sure, Lost sure. in Translation, Mulholland Drive. Like we're not Donnie Darko. Like yeah. these are the exciting indie films of my high school. Experience you hadn't seen Wong Kar Wai. I hadn't seen Wong Kar Wai. <laughs> um, and I do think that there is something about Sofia Coppola that's just like you're kind of jacking other people's styles, and specifically like you can't. But that's not bad, either. No, no, it, it doesn't. Not necessarily bad. Um, but you can't sort of do slow cinema. You can't have like, well, this shot is a three minute push in on his face. Yeah. But another shot where we see someone making food, we're going to do cutaways, and we're going to like, like where she's making the uh, eggs Benedict, Benedict for, yeah, yeah, yeah. for them. It's like there's a cut to a close up where she's uh, chopping the chives, and I'm like. That's some that's some fucking poser shit. That's not how you <laughs> look. I've seen a lot of movies yeah. where people prepare food in mm-hmm, slow motion. Mm-hmm. Like that's not. You don't do cutaways. You don't cut away to him in bed and then back to her making the eggs or yeah. whatever. And like, but the pace of most of the movie, I don't think is that different than the pace of a Lost in Translation. It's just like these no, certain moments so. she decides to dip into it. Yeah, but slow cinema in general, and like slow cinema again, hugely broad umbrella. 
a lot of movies have a slow pace that achieve wildly different things with them. Yeah. Tarkovsky movie and a Simon Liang movie are just like so fucking different from each other. Uh, John Dealman to me is slow. John Dealman is is a little bit yeah, that's like that's a that's a certain slow cinema. Yeah. But like there is just like a hypnotism mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that hypnotism, you need to change the actual rhythm of the viewer. And you can't yeah. do that if you're yeah. only occasionally dipping into that. Mm-hmm. If Jerry was only sometimes slow, but then there was like a scene where they were looking around and there was like several cuts and edits and stuff, yeah. it wouldn't be Jerry. It would be something else. Right. Um, this feels like a copy of a copy of a copy, but I like the original. <laughs> like the idea, I mean, like if she saw, you know, the Gus Van Sant trilogy where he's kind of doing that and just went, oh, I want to make my own version of that or, you know, sort of taking that as like a, a blueprint to do her own version of that. I don't think that's a bad thing. I just, I, I don't think it serves her well. Here. I don't think it does. I don't, I don't get insight when he's getting the, when he's sort of getting uh, at the special effects studio and he's getting the face mask covered. Mm-hmm. I don't get anything out of that shot that I don't get immediately from the first, like from the first moment of him being covered up. Yeah. Um, I, same with just like the very slow push in, where they're by the pool. Like, again, if you are telling the story where this is peace and he does realize that he loves his child and that... Um, the song makes me think that. Like and, just, and that's it's possible. Very pretty. I, could, I could be reading it totally different than it was intended, and I don't think it's the only valid reading. But, like, for me, that's the most interesting reading, and also yeah. that's the only one that well, justifies the ending. I, yeah. Because if, if, if he loves makes his it more daughter and he just spent a bunch of time with her and she just said, I want to spend more time with you, and he said, okay, well, I'm going to pick you up in a couple weeks, like, then guess what, buddy? You just solved your fucking problem. You got out of your own head. You learned to live for someone else yeah. for once. Uh, instead, he's just like, eh, let's go to Vegas. I'm going to hell. I know I'm supposed to drop you off at this place, but instead I'm going to helicopter to a place where a cab can drop you off. And then I'm going to helicopter back. Like, I don't think he gives I think he's like a fundamentally selfish person who cannot actually be a proper Mm. father. Um, And in which case them sitting by the pool is just them sitting by a pool. (laughs) That's true. Um, I do wonder if it's just like me projecting like, oh, isn't this nice because of the song and they're together. Yeah. You know? I and the other thing, the other thing for me is like, I don't like that. I don't like the strokes. I don't like Julian Casablanca's voice. Mm-hmm. I don't think that song is very good. So that's just like that. I, I, I like specifically sat there and noted like, oh, I bet other people really like this song, but I just, <laughs> this is doing nothing for yeah. me. I, I like it. Yeah. That's, that's but, fair. I don't I th- I like the, this movie as much as I used to. But I, think, I, I, th- I think him apologizing, but it's like covered up by the blades of the helicopter. I think that is reheated, lost in translation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she does reheat. <laughs> I, I, she does, like through most of her movies, more or less. Like, even on the rocks, when I saw that, I was just kind of like, I- I've been there, done that. I, know, I, even Bill Murray's character. On the rocks felt different than most of her movies. I didn't necessarily think so. No. I mean, again, it's just about a fractured father-daughter relationship and them going through it and trying to reconcile. And it's just kind of, it did feel like a blend of all of her movies, more or less. Uh, um, I'm curious. I mean, I haven't watched it since it first came out. I just didn't think much of it. And The Beguiled, I don't think is as interesting as the Clint Eastwood version. I mean, it's got good performances because with that cast... I mean, sometimes that's all that I'll go, oh, well, I can gravitate towards that aspect. Like, oh, the acting's really good. Yeah. So I'm going to focus on that as opposed to be like, well, this is kind of slow or it's not working for me or this or that. Um, but 
I just, I don't know. Maybe I have to reassess Sofia Coppola's career in the same way I have to do with Rob Zombie. Possibly. <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm like, I don't think she is like, oh, she has no talent. Or no, whatever. she's like, she's talented. Like, I, think I, she I, I think you get a lot of. I think I think if your father is Francis Ford Coppola, boy, that sure helps you get your foot in yeah. doors. Especially, it's and but they're like, all well shot. But on, but all on, the movies are beautifully shot. But on the other hand, like she's also a woman uh, in Hollywood trying to to get her idiosyncratic art films made. So like, guess what? She's Nepotism. already operating at disadvantage from there. So like the fact that she used her father to get in the door or whatever. No, no harm there people i don't think all of the teenagers uh, who are still discovering movies like lost in translation are like oh yeah that movie's great because i love the godfather <laughs> you know? like, that movie's great because tucker a man in his vision is is, oh, is my well, shit like no. i don't think it's Francis i think we can, both, fans we can both agree extending that to her i think she earned her place in film culture yeah. Uh, so, like, I, I think I, you know, she has talents and stuff. I think she has a good eye for casting, and I think she, um, in the specific sort of worlds that she depicts, like, she has an eye for the detail. Like, mm-hmm. there are just like little things about how a press junket works and how. Oh, for sure. And and how uh, you know, just ending up on foreign television and stuff like that. Like, there's just little details here and there that feel well observed. And if if that stuff was funnier, I think that would go down a lot easier. If it was just like a well observed satire, I don't think she can sort of fully bring herself yeah. to have the the big picture vision that you need to do a proper satire on that rich world. I don't think she has the context to step out of it. Oh, other thing I wanted to bring up because of Elle Fanning making Eggs Benedict. Did you see the TikTok of Sofia Coppola's daughter? I'm grounded because I tried to charter a helicopter from New York to Maryland on my dad's credit card because I wanted to have dinner with my girlfriend. Make vodka sauce pasta with me because I'm grounded because I tried to charter a helicopter from New York to Maryland on my dad's credit card because I wanted to have dinner with my girlfriend. Okay, let's get started. I don't know the difference between a garlic or onion and I just have, I just have Google images of onions on my phone and I just, I'm embarrassed, I'm embarrassed. Also, I thought I would do this since I'm already grounded because my parents' biggest rule is like, I'm not allowed to have any um, public social media accounts. Here's why. Right. Like, it was this like hilarious thing. And then there's like literally, there's a scene in uh, in somewhere where Elle Fanning's on the phone and she's like just reading out a list of ingredients she needs for mac and cheese. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, and, she, and someone is going to go get it for her. Her babysitter has to go get her ingredients. She's like, uh, and I'll be back with part two of the video when my babysitter is back with the ingredients. So like, Ooh. that is a really <laughs> funny TikTok, uh, in general, just because it is just like this insight into this other fucking. She goes, "I'm not allowed to have social media because," and then she holds up a Grammy. <laughs> it was just like it was just like a very funny peek into the world of the ultra privileged rich uh, children of famous people. Um, uh, and hmm. but also, I do think that there is something to somewhere that a she has enormous sensitivity and empathy. For Elle Fanning. Yes. And I think that has to come from being the child of Francis Ford Coppola and being That's a my child feeling about growing it. up in this world yeah. and trying to sort of like eke out a normal childhood. I think she did gymnastics mm-hmm. uh, or something like that yep. in the way that she, you know, Elle Fanning did Figure ice skating, skating and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. So I think that a lot of this movie is her working out some of those feelings about like the, the things that uh, she didn't get as a child because of who her father was and because of the spheres he traveled through and like how all of the 
you know, the fancy hotels in Italy when he, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, like, all of that is not an actual replacement for a father who is actually there for you day to day and stuff like that. And I don't know what kind of father Francis Ford Coppola was. He certainly was a workaholic. He yeah. certainly, uh, You've maybe... seen Hearts of Darkness. Exactly. I mean... So, like, if, if it turned out that Francis Ford Coppola was a somewhat absent father, wouldn't surprise me. No, any. no, no. He I, would it not, wouldn't surprise he me He would either. not be the only uh, filmmaker of his generation to be that guy. Yeah, um, and Lost in Translation was her working out her, you know, marriage and right, like right. what was going on with Spike I th- Jones. I think that there is also in somewhere, and I, I think this is why it works as well as it does at all. I think there is also an anxiety that she is repeating those mistakes. I mm. think being a child, being a mother of a four-year-old girl, I think this movie is also her looking to the future and being like, fuck. She's about to become like an actual human being and a person, and I have a film career, and like yeah. my my husband has a has a music career, and like what am I going to do? What is like I am 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 I going to make the right decision when it comes time to choose between career and family? Mm. And like I feel that anxiety in this movie, and I think that she does even as much as I think that Stephen Dorff's character is ultimately uh, neglectful and a bad father. I do think that Sofia Coppola understands the predicament he's in. I wonder if has she had casted an actress in the Stephen Dorff role. Like, it'd be a mother-daughter story. I wonder if that would have been even more effective because I think she is very good at writing women. I, I think that I think that would be interesting. I think part of what... I think an essential part of Stephen Dorff's character is his privilege yeah. and the fact that he travels through the world with everyone doing everything for him and mm-hmm. he just has a mm-hmm. frictionless existence. And I think even a rich and powerful and famous actress does not have that existence. I think when he shows up at the junket and Michelle Monaghan's looking great and yeah. has her makeup all done and he just rolled out of bed <laughs> and she goes, oh, you look great. And he goes, thanks. He's being sarcastic. Like, I think that is her being like... I actually still have to fucking work. I, for all we know, she is the female equivalent. That's a of good him, point. Yeah, but she yeah. has to still work because she's a woman in this world. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that she understands. It that. would be a different movie, right? You would have to tell a different story with somewhere where the lead is a woman. I think it, you could still tell the story. It would still be interesting, mm-hmm. but like I think it would just be a different thing because the the frictionless nature of his existence is so key to his ennui. Yeah. But if he has no inner life and I don't know if his outer life is just superficial to where nothing matters, I I guess he does have that epiphany on the phone that he is nothing. Right. He's a non-person and he's just. But that's just not dramatic for a whole film. It's just it's just it's just hard. And it's like there's there's probably an actor out there who could have done it. But like just Steven Dorff is not that guy. No. Um, So uh, one, if you are to take her teenage daughter who was mad about being punished for stealing a credit card and chartering a helicopter. If you were to take her word as gospel, which maybe don't, uh, it would, it is kind of the, the story that it paints is that, Oh yeah. Sophia Coppola ended up being the Stephen Dorff character. <laughs> wow. Well, it's, it's quite possible. That is possible. And then like, I mean, for her, maybe on the rocks was her still trying to reconcile with her, father yeah i mean that could it could have a more personal stamp in in that regard that would make it more interesting but i don't know i even think like do i really love last lost in translation because i'm projecting my love of bill murray Uh, you know like it's not necessarily the character in lost in translation i'm like Bill Murray is yeah. such an incredibly charismatic and weird and interesting actor, and I love him. And 
you know, he's in this movie and he could very well be playing a version of himself. So I find that interesting. And, you know, I even I do love Scarlett Johansson in that movie. But I don't know if I there's a whole lot else going on in terms of it just being about two lonely people. Yeah. Two lonely rich actors or, you know, well, she's a photographer. Well, she's not. She doesn't know what she is in that movie, but it's. But she operates in spheres of wealth because she is married to a famous person. But I also don't want to be like, well, they're rich and privileged. I don't care. You know, I. I'm fine doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, again, like the great big empathy machine that is movies. I try to look beyond that, but it's also hard because there are times where I'm just like, oh, well, you're you're rich. Everything's going to be fine. (laughs) I don't know. I think think there's plenty of great stories that you can tell about rich, powerful, privileged people. I think think this story even could be that if it was just had more depth to it. Mm-hmm. I think I think the ch- the chief problem for me is that I have not seen the Sofia Coppola movie where she shows a lot of depth. I think she has good taste and I think Marie she Antoinette has Marie Antoinette is probably skill. the closest you get I gotta to rewatch that. I haven't seen that since I was in high school. Yeah. Um, but I, I do still love I think it's her best movie. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. I thought, I thought I you think were so. a Virgin Suicides. It's Marie Antoinette, Virgin Suicides, Lost in Translation, uh... Somewhere bling ring <laughs> again, like either one. Lick the star is my favorite, so I'm a I'm one of those short What's film Lick sickos. The star? That's her I... that's her black and white short film that oh, she wow. made. That's just like a... again, it's 16 minutes long, so it doesn't have a chance to overstay its welcome, yeah. and it is just this like really perfectly captured, uh, just like picture of the specific ways that I think it's middle school, it might be high school, but mm-hmm. I think it's middle school girls are shitty and yeah. horrible to each other. And it's just it just has a really clear point of view and it's very nimble formally. Like the edits just feel very fluid and and it feels uh, a lot more expressive and uh I mean it's the story it's telling is is so much more expressionist than the it's not as literal as the stories that she tells in her features because mm-hmm. it's a short film. Um, but like that to me is like, okay, this is all of Sophia Coppola's, all of the upside, none of the downside. <laughs> and it's not as ambitious, but like, I don't necessarily need the ambition. Maybe you would like the Ari Aster short films because they're, they're sort of self-contained oh, in possibly. 20 minutes and don't, they don't need to be three hours. I think Brendan, they sum up all the, all his themes pretty much in Brendan, one. Brendan Cronenberg has a short film called speak continuously and describe what's happening to that's you. And I too. think that's his best film. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> So <laughs> I don't know. There's just, yeah, that's maybe some filmmakers get it all out in a short film. And then the rest of it is just like, uh, well, I'm just going to keep going at this. Like, I'm just going to keep repeating myself. I don't I, know. I think I there mean, is a, I think there is a skill to being a storyteller that a lot of directors don't have, but we don't exist in the era where there are the master screenwriters that they get paired with mm. um, because what they want to be is that auteur. They need to be the writer-director. Like, that is just, like, a key part of them as an artist is, like, no, I am the writer-director. I am the master auteur. I originate all my own material. But they're not storytellers. And then it's, like, would Nicholas Winding Refn be, <laughs> st- like, still be your favorite filmmaker if after Drive, he started partnering up with people who were interested in character and plot, but Nicholas Winding Refn was there to add the style and, yeah. the, and the visuals. And it's like, Nicholas Winding Refn, I watch his shit, and I'm just like, just direct music videos, dude. You don't need to do these like long-ass feature films with movie stars. Like It's clear that you don't care about the neon demon, like the plot of the neon demon. So like, just skip the plot, bro. Do a music video. Yeah. And I feel like 
I feel like, but like it's a visual medium. Sometimes people are just drawn in with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I, know, you know. I, I respect that. Like, there's moments where I feel similarly, more or less. I mean, you know? I am about to do an Terrence episode Malick on... Terrence isn't a great storyteller, really. I, I'm about to do an episode on Simon Liang, and Simon Liang is as limited as it gets as far as, like, filmmakers who keep repeating the same stories and the same characters and the same images and the same... But they're still interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. And, that's, and that's just, like, so my shit. Like, I, I don't love all of his movies, but I am so happy every time I'm watching one of his movies. Well, Days, is, days stretches it, but... For the most part, Simon Liang movie, I'm on board for the good ones, the bad ones, whatever. I just like the thing he does. So I understand yeah, for some people that that's Nicholas Winding Refn. Yeah. For some people that's uh, on Ari Aster or whatever. Um, but I, I do think, so want to know what you're going to think of Bo is Afraid. <laughs> I, well, I'm not going to see it in theaters, but I, I will eventually see it. But I, I, yeah, it's... I do think that a part of why uh, film culture, a, a detriment uh, to film culture now is an obsession with this auteur like I, I want to be the Quentin Tarantino who is in charge of everything that happens, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like a lot of you don't have all of those skills. It takes a lot of skills in terms of a vision, in terms of direction, in terms of what the camera does, in terms of talking to actors, in terms of telling stories. Like there's so many things going on and you might not be good at all of it. And if you refuse to see... That's why you need good collaborators. Yeah, you need yeah. a collaborator. Um, yeah, and, there, and that includes people telling you no, sometimes. Right, right. You know, right. You're, this movie doesn't need to be three hours or any number of things. But I think once you reach a certain level, it's almost like, no, I'm not. He's Scorsese. I'm it's, not going to tell, it's, him, it's you know, very, tell him. It's very funny watching somewhere and thinking that there was a time where I considered it Sofia Coppola at her most indulgent and her most like, oh my gosh, she's so up her own ass here. And it's like, this movie is like 94 minutes. This yeah. movie is not that ambitious. This movie is not a big swing. She's a, she, again, she's a woman, so does she get the opportunity to do those big swings? Not really. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. like, uh, they, no. but Chantal Ackerman was able to. I mean, her, uh, Sofia Coppola's next movie is like about Priscilla Presley, so like, I think that might be <sighs> a bigger project than she has done before, unless, yeah. unless she, you know, unless she. I'm curious. Yeah, I'll see it. I guess Marie Antoinette is a, is a big swing. That's a period piece, yeah. and that's a, but like, the way she approaches it, it doesn't feel like a big. No, Epic. it's still a Sophie Coppola movie. Period. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I still like it a um, lot. Um, but I, I think the conclusion we can come to is that neither of these films deserve the v- sort of like angry, no. bitter, like, oh, God, I'm going to throw. Like, I mean, yeah. it was just, it's funny to think about that. <laughs> I was like, I'm watching right. Devil's Rejects. I'm like, wow, why did I hate this so much? <laughs> why? You yeah, know, why? I mean, I could see. I can see why some people do. The worst movie you ever see have ever seen is over at a certain point, and then it's over, and it doesn't hurt you anymore. You know what yeah. I mean? Like the you know, generally speaking, bad movies are no more than two hours of wasted time, which I waste two hours every day doing <laughs> much worse things than watching a movie like I don't know, Natural Born Killers or whatever. Like there's I today I definitely spent two hours sitting on a couch when if I had spent those two hours watching Natural Born Killers, which I a movie I hate, would have been more meaningful experience. Oh yeah, it can happen. Um, but I think I think again like in 2010, uh, 2011, that was the era when I was young and I was still like really invested in the film as a medium and as a culture and like the right things need to succeed and the wrong things need to fail and <laughs> it needs to make sure. That what I want, what I want to be the world of film is the thing that that 
exists because there was a sense of scarcity and a sense of like, oh, things mm-hmm. are contracting on us. And when people start overpraising the wrong things, that's, you know, that was like where I started to turn on Paul Thomas Anderson was just like a, no, 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 you guys, you're going to ruin everything. If we, if we give Paul <laughs> Thomas Anderson too much power, it's going to fuck up this thing for someone else or whatever. It's like, yeah. that's just not how I know. I don't, I'm not invested in that way. The culture wars of like the right things need to win and the wrong, you know, those things. Need yeah. to lose. It's just like, it's wasted energy. It is. I'm not going to get angry if somebody likes something that I don't see a lot of value in. Right. And a lot of the times, even in the case of Bo is Afraid or the new Evil Dead Rise, I'm like, I guess I could see why people would hate it. I could see why people some why people love it. I'm just square in the middle and yeah. thinking, oh, some parts worked, some parts didn't. You know, I the mean, problem the problem is you can definitely get to the point where if you watch too many square in the middle movies in a row, you start to like a. Do I like movies anymore? Oh, that's happening. <laughs> yeah. <There> you go. <laughs> I'm think... worried about the Critics Festival because I'm like, oh, no, what if that happens? What if it's everything's just like a three out of five or I'm whatever? Just, I'm, I'm just seeing a lot of perfectly fine shit. And then like every once in a while, like I think that's actually why something like this is good. Because even if you saw Devil's Rejects and hated it again, at least that can reorient yourself. And you can just be like, <laughs> oh, yeah, no, 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 no. I can have strong feelings at yeah, the very yeah, least. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then sometimes you need but, to just like step out of your comfort zone and watch a Bellatar movie and just be like, God, I put off Bellatar forever because it seems like such a chore. But guess what? The, the time for vegetables is now. I'm eating yum yum <laughs> Brussels sprouts. Yeah, no, Brussels sprouts can be good when you, yeah, when you roast them with some bacon and... Wreckmeister uh, Harmonies, by the way. My review is... <sighs> okay. <laughs> Part, parts of it are like the most brilliant, like you can't fucking believe that a human being made a movie like this. Yeah. Overall, I don't think it does what it's i, w- I want to hear one thing when we just because we're going to close out soon mm-hmm. you recently watched the godfather oh yeah yeah, yeah. well i didn't finish <laughs> i didn't finish the godfather oh you didn't finish it okay no but i was i was gonna say okay. i i'm gonna go i'm gonna say something because i think you can hate the godfather uh with, with i don't a know certain, if i've ever met anybody who's hate the Godfather. i i don't hate the godfather but i'm saying i think you could be an anti-godfather person and have a certain amount of shielding based on the fact that you can say like well it's overrated i'm gonna i'll, I'll do you one better i saw the conversation don't about dude, six don't, months no, no, ago no, 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 no. you don't want to do that no don't do that don't. i don't think the conversation is that good oh. i think there are a few scenes that are absolutely spectacular I think the like Catholic guilt shit is so heavy handed and it's just laid on so thick. Hmm. And I think that right when it starts to get interesting, it ends. And it's just I I'm not a conversation person anymore. I haven't seen Apocalypse Now since I was in high school. God knows if I'm the Apocalypse Now person. But I did. Maybe I, you don't like Francis Ford Coppola. I'm well as much. You know what I saw? You know what I saw on the big screen last year? Peggy Sue got married. Oh, that's, Guess what? That's my amazing. favorite Francis Ford Coppola movie that's is. It. That's Peggy it. Peggy Sue got that's married. It. It's fucking incredible. It is. Um, but I will. I started watching The Godfather, and it was just this like I hadn't seen it in years and years and years and years, and I was just like, all right, I'm older, I'm wiser, I'm smarter, I have more taste. I'm gonna, I have more knowledge of like what it takes to make a film, so I'm gonna be impressed by all these little choices before. And I just sat there and I was like, this is very pretty looking, and. I don't. Mm, it's, it maybe it's maybe it's too iconic for its own good, where everything just like you can't feel it because you felt the imitations of it. Maybe sure, I'll make an offer that. I can't refuse. Only sounds like a thing a dad says instead of <laughs> you know what I mean. Like it's it's like maybe one of those things where it's like a victim. Of, but I was just sort of like waiting for it to become the greatest movie ever. 
which is also like maybe not the correct way to watch a, any movie. Um, like I watched a brighter summer day, which is often considered one of the greatest movies ever recently. And a brighter summer day, I did not sit there with my arms folded and go, "Okay, greatest movie ever." Impress me. I just sort of <laughs> accepted it and I let it sneak up on me. And mm-hmm. then you know, it's about four hours long. About ninety minutes into it, I was like, "I think this is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen." Sure, so that like, can happen. You know, happen with I, me and uh, close up with uh, the Kiristami. Oh yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. sure, yeah. John Dealman, another one yep, where yep. it was like. Mm-hmm. So much pressure on that movie oh, having no just been voted. Sound, yeah. yeah, so I, I saw I saw uh, John Dealman for the very first time in the movie theater, and I specifically had to tell myself like, don't go in like piping yourself up over either this movie is a sham and anyone who thinks it's the greatest movie ever is full of shit, or this is definitely the greatest movie ever. Just accept it for what it is. And again, it was like that's a movie where it's the repetition of the thing that is yeah. the building. So like that was a movie for for forty minutes. I was just like. Okay. Okay. And then just a, it slowly just started to build and it never stopped building and it got so emotional. And like John Dillman's fucking incredible. Sure. Brighter Summer Day, fucking incredible. I maybe did not give The Godfather <laughs> the same uh, genera- generous reading of it. But I will say, I got to the point where Michael goes to Italy, which everyone knows is the worst part of The Godfather. Uh-huh. If you ever see a screening of The Godfather, that's where you will see 40 men get up and go, go to pee. Because yeah, they yeah, all yeah. know that as soon as Michael goes to Italy, they have like 30 minutes where nothing important is going to happen. I got there and I said, you know what? I'm not going to finish this. <laughs> I bet The Godfather Part 2 still fucking whips. I bet if I watched I The Godfather so. Part yeah. 2, I bet that's the actual, because I feel like less of that is now part of pop I culture. I mean, I was always saying... There's a lot of things about The Godfather that are good. It just, oh, of course it, 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 never, yeah. it never built to it never built to one of the greatest movies ever in my mind as I was watching it. And that's why I felt like I was losing... When was people were crazy. coming up to me and being like, well, The Godfather is one of the greatest movies ever made, I would always say, I like Goodfellas more, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, I really do. Yeah, I mean, mean it, I like Mean Streets more than The Godfather. Sure. Um, no, yeah, I, I think I do too to be honest I yeah mean, scorsese has a pulse throughout like his <laughs> his early movies i'm not saying like godfather's slow and languid no. but it's and there and there is something to the classicism of francis ford coppola and the mm-hmm, way he's mm-hmm, making mm-hmm. a movie that feels like it maybe could have existed in the 60s yep it doesn't feel super new hollywood it's very patient and so when those things sneak up on you and it does get violent and it and it does get uh like rougher and it and it does get realer and it and it does get a little more biting than you would expect a movie from that era to be. Like those things work. There's there's yeah. good performances throughout. Uh, what's his name from all the Cassavetes movies? Who's in Death Dream? Who plays the Hollywood producer? Oh right, I know who you're talking about, but his name escapes me. And I know it's not he, Seymour Cassell. He's fucking something. great. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, yeah. John something. <laughs> the conversation is really the one where people can take away my cinephile card because the conversation is the new handed over. Yeah, here you go. Uh, that's the new, like, everyone knows the best Francis Ford Coppola movies, actually, The Conversation. If you're some AFI 100 Greatest Movies of All Time fucking dork who doesn't actually read anything other than IMDb, you might think Apocalypse Now or Godfather. We, the educated, think that The Conversation is the clear masterpiece of this filmmaker. And I watched that and I was just like, yeah, I don't I don't think it's got it. So Sharon and I went to a uh, a benefit for NAMI. She got me a ticket and we're just there, and it's basically like, you know, a bunch of rich people hanging sure. out, and, you know, you're getting free wine and hors d'oeuvres, and then you get to sit down at, the, at an assigned table, and we're surrounded by, you know, a lot of people who never met, and 
you know, they're a little bit Seymour older. Cassell! <laughs> Sorry, if God. only. Um, Seymour Cassell was in The Godfather. But, that you know, was for the, the most part, everybody at our table is keeping to themselves or just talking to their partner or whatever. This guy next to me um, just wants to know more about me and, like, what, what, what do I do? What am I into? Why am I here? Making conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Very friendly. Very friendly. Drank a lot of wine. Mm-hmm. So he was very talkative. Very friendly. Yes. Got it. Got, um, I'm getting the picture. And... You know, so of course I mentioned, yeah, I'm a, I'm a film podcaster. I love film. I'm a member of the Chicago Film Critics Society, blah, blah, blah. And he goes to me, well, let me, let me, let me talk to you about a certain movie that um, I feel really strongly about. And I go, okay, great. Well, what, what is it? Do you consider it your favorite movie? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is definitely my favorite movie. Have you seen The Godfather? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I have seen The Godfather. And he, and he goes, um, yeah, I just think that's the most important American movie ever made. I think it's the greatest film that ha- has ever existed. And um, I, truly do, I, I, I truly do think those oranges were accidental. <laughs> and I go, well. That's the, that's the, <laughs> he parrots back the thing that people say about The Godfather. And then he goes. But I'm going to add my own little spice yep. to do it. Yeah. The oranges were accidental. I Yeah. And I was like, well, I think for the most part, they plan out shots in ahead of time and know what they're going to put in the frame and everything. But sure, it's possible. You know, I didn't want to challenge. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. That's exactly, that's exactly <laughs> what I say to this gentleman, too. Yeah. Yeah. It was just funny. Yeah. Like, and then, then, <laughs> then after that, he goes, uh, have, you, have, you, have you ever seen the movie Rain Man? Like yeah, yeah. I've seen Rain Man. It's, it's. I got a hot tip for you, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, just like okay. I mean, he probably just doesn't know the level of no, cinephile no, of course, that yeah. I am. Well, so, I, mean, I mean, we and you, we have the same problem. Yeah. Where like any like, as like this is a, this is a different era, but mm-hmm. this conversation repeats throughout history uh, with different movies in the place of it. But at some point, someone will find out that you love movies, and they'll go, "You know, it's a great movie." Little Miss Sunshine, sure. or whatever sure. the, or like whatever the equivalent of Little Miss Sunshine, like the first movie that ever made them have any thoughts at all because it wasn't uh, Con Air. <laughs> it becomes the most important movie, uh-huh. and we know that like we can't actually talk about the thing we love with people yep. unless they are fucking broken in the brain the way we are, <sighs> and that's why I mean I look at you well, and I think about the twelve years that we've been doing this. And I think to myself, like, thank God I found someone with a compatible autism to my own. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and Bill, if you're listening. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't get. Because because there's just, you can't have these conversations with those people. They'd be like, oh, you know, you know, it's a great movie. It's a little older. It's a little older. But I think it's still really good. Uh, Dancing in the Rain. Okay. (laughs) Singing in the Rain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you'd be like, I can say. I couldn't help it, though. I have because opinions on seven other Stanley Donan movies. Thank he, you he very qu- much. He, he quoted like one of the final lines of Rain Man, and he's like, yeah, Walmart sucks. And I couldn't help it. I'm like, it's actually Kmart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you fell for it. You fell for mm, the trap. You just yeah. let him have it every time. I just had to feel a little superior. It's one of those. It's one. Of, it's one. Of, it's the curse of if someone found out that you were into model trains, they'd go. I have no frame of reference for that, so I'm just going to ask you questions, and your opinion is going to be the only opinion stated at this point. Yeah. Or I'm not going to ask you questions because I don't give a fuck. And either way, you don't have to pretend. Uh, but 
everyone's watches movies. And, it's true. And it's just, but like, you can't actually have a movie conversation with just anyone. I can uh, have it with it's you. It's very challenging sometimes. But I mean, I did bring up the conversation to him. It's like, if you're a fan of The Godfather, yeah. you know that uh, you know, a couple of years later, Francis Ford Coppola made another movie uh, called The Conversation. It's like, oh, really? I haven't heard of that one. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's like, wow, Gene Hackman. Yeah, great. He's great in that. You, should, you, should, you definitely should check it out sometime. What If you chose violence... You could have been like just downing wine and being like, Godfather sucks. Finian's rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> Tucker, the man in his dream. Uh, oh, no, he did Jack. Didn't he do Jack? He did do Jack. Oh, my God, Jack. You know what? Sometimes you got to make your money. Oh. And sometimes sometimes it works out, though. Sometimes making your money means you make the Rainmaker, which is like. Oh, that's, that's actually a, okay. It's a surprisingly yeah, good yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. We should talk about John Grisham movies sometime. That'd be fun. Um, already asleep. But. Oh, <laughs> poor guy. Well, this was a lot of fun, Patrick. Yeah. I enjoyed revisiting these movies and realizing, you know what? They're not so bad. No. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. Somewhere is not so... I, I, It's the thing where it's just like, I, the reason I wanted to do this podcast is because I don't stand by the, what I said on old episodes. Mm-hmm. My feeling on somewhere, I'm still pretty much like it at the same level, but I can actually articulate it like an adult now. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I can come to terms with the fact that you know rob zombie doesn't make terrible movies all the time no you know i kind of like lords of salem he's an artist kind of you know i mean that's the thing too is like he's I don't, got a I, don't, vision. I don't actively sit down to watch a movie and go oh i hope i hate this yeah you know but i mean god for god's sakes you watch the monsters you're a stronger man than I'm i 20 minutes i, okay. I couldn't get through the oh, whole okay. thing you know. But you do watch bad movies when they become like you will uh, sit through a movie that you're pretty sure will be terrible if if you feel like it's part of the zeitgeist. You, you know what hap- that happens the most is with uh, the spe- the suspense is uh, terrible podcast. Oh, the suspense is killing us. Been, yeah, I always do that. The suspense, suspense is killing us because they just make these bad movies sound like so much fun. Yeah, you know, like I mean, I. I, I will say, Color of Night, not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination, but I love watching it. I forget. You they, know? they did some, I'm like, sure that's true with I Know You Killed Me and like, yeah. just, yeah. They're, they're terrible, but I'm still entertained. Yeah. But it's okay. Wow. We did it. We did it. Yeah. We don't hate these movies. No. It's a miracle. I'm glad. Um, so now we got to watch Elizabeth Town and House of the Devil. No, we did House of the Devil. We did a commentary. We track. did a commentary track on House of the Devil. Yeah. I, I feel like we hashed out our. Well, we, we, both hate, we, we both hated Elizabeth Town. That's right. Yeah, we both hated Elizabeth Town. We can find some more stuff. Um, you would know better than I. You, I, I don't listen to the old episodes, uh, but well, I definitely came around on Marcy, Mar- Mar- Marcy May Marlene because mm-hmm. I was like pretty cold on it the first time, but now I love it. My my big always my little uh, Al Bundy the high school game where I scored five touchdowns like thing mm-hmm. is the fact that the second I saw Burn After Reading the first weekend I knew it was a masterpiece and I remember the conversation I had with you where you were like yeah it was kind of disappointing I didn't get it yeah and and it's like I feel like everyone else caught up to me on that one they Burn did. After Reading's a oh, masterpiece yeah. uh, so that's the one I'm always like yeah you did it. <laughs> <laughs> For every one of those, I would like to have a serious man conversation with you because I don't. I I think that's a masterpiece. Oh yeah, you yeah. Don't. I mean, there's a, there's. I mean, Inside Lewin Davis sure. is another one that we could have a. a yeah, conver- yeah, yeah. I watched Inside Lewin Davis maybe two three years ago, and I I felt the same way. Oh. Uh, so that's that's certainly one that we would have a disagreement on. Yeah. We could do a serious man Inside Lewin Davis at some point. Oh sure. No, I mean Coen Brothers Part Two should happen anyway. <laughs> you right. know. 
God, I want to just, I do want to redo. Well, if, you know what's funny about those movies is I feel like there was that was still an era when I was like the Coen Brothers are really exciting, vital filmmakers. They're yeah. making some of my favorite movies, and so like when a, something like a Serious Man comes out, which is n- by no means a bad movie, but it just like doesn't totally work for me. That's when I go like, oh, it's so disappointing. They could be, you know, they they should be. Uh, achieving so much higher now that we've gone so long without any coen brothers that uh, like now i'm yeah, like I'm i bet i watch withdrawal. a serious man and I, it would just be a fucking feast i'd be like oh my god what a fucking great movie yeah uh you inside- could also you could also see parts of bo is afraid which is very serious man in some parts oh, anyway right? but it's like that's a whole thing it's a mashup of a lot of things yeah. and most of the things i love but mm, copy of a copy reheated i don't know yeah we'll see I'm going to watch it again for my birthday, actually, because I really want to see what Sharon thinks of Bo is Afraid. I, I was early. We'll see if everyone comes around. Like, no one no one will ever agree with me on the Paul Thomas Anderson thing um, in terms of, like, him as a screenwriter. Like, I just, I don't think that's going to eventually, like, people will come around and see my view point of view. I think that's done. I think that there's still a chance that everyone will come around on my Ari Aster point of view. So we'll, mm. we will see if I am the hmm. guy who saw hereditary and instantly said, this guy doesn't got it. The only guy in, in on this God's green earth that saw hereditary and said, this guy doesn't have it. Uh, I still think hereditary is amazing. I, I have no faith but, in everyone coming around to me, but I'm just saying it would be fun. It would be fun. Oh, well, it could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe uh RAP Judy Tenuta. It could happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for coming on for my special birthday bonus episode. This was a lot of fun. You yeah. didn't have to do 48 games or whatever the what was it 43? Never again. More, yeah, it was it was, <laughs> it was game 43, 43. Yeah, that's movie right. 43. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That was fun. That was weird. Never again. <laughs> no, I like this approach better. Two, Two movies. Yeah. We ended up having more to say than a, I mean, yeah, it was an, it was a fun fun conversation. Thank I you for agree. having me on. Well, thank you for coming back, and I look forward to your upcoming podcast. Yes, with I Bill look forward Ackerman. to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how it's going out. We got to do a proper goodbye. Oh everybody. yeah, uh, everybody, please listen to the Directors Club. Um, and check out the podcast over at directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. What do they got coming up in Directors Club, Jim? Oh, my gosh. Um, Bill Ackerman's doing Jean-Luc Godard as a miniseries. Oh, boy, am I excited to hear that. Because he interviewed a lot of people. Long overdue. A lot of people. Dude bit off so much work on that one. That is going to be one of the more impressive episodes, series of episodes of Directors Club that have ever existed. Yeah. Definitely check out the Jean-Luc Godard episodes, especially after Jean-Luc Godard's death. This is not going to be people regurgitating the same opinions about those 12 movies he made in the 60s and not like this is going to be. You're going to be impressed. It's it's incredible. I, I don't doubt it. Like, if there were podcast awards, I would say right now, let's nominate it. Because <laughs> I, I think he's the best. I think Bill is the best. And mm-hmm. so are you, Patrick. You got an episode coming up here on this show. That's right. Mentioned a couple times. Simon Liang, Taiwanese new wave director, director of such classics as Goodbye Dragon Inn, What Time it is It? What Time Is It There? The River. Uh, the Hole. The Hole. Great, great film. One of the most important filmmakers of the COVID era, I would say, going back over his work, mm. even the like lesser seen films, like I Don't Want to Sleep Alone, there is so much about it that you just go, holy fuck. It turns out, it's not that he predicted COVID, it's that the things he was always obsessed with have become sharper and more urgent Ooh. as uh, we have become more isolated from each other. 
Um, and he has always dealt with uh, sort of the body breaking down and physical ailments and stuff in a way that dovetails into that stuff that makes it all of them feel like fucking uh, quarantine movies. Damn. So uh, okay. I would say Simon Liang, despite not having made a feature film in the COVID era, is the most important COVID era filmmaker. Wow. Uh, if you want to understand the world we live in, I would say you can do a lot worse than watching the movies that he made from Rebels of the Neon God through Goodbye Dragon. I, I love Rebels of the Neon God. It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. I can't wait to hear you guys talk about this director. And then I'll be back in mid-June to talk about Carl Franklin with the with the guys from Exit Through the 2010. Yes, Exit Through the 2010s podcast, which is delightful, and I'm still uh, amazed that uh, they're 20 years younger than me. They're in their 20s, yeah. and they know a lot, and they're very smart and very funny and very talented. And Carl, Carl Franklin's a great pull. Definitely a director yeah. that could be, could use a, uh, a, a deep dive. Yeah, well, um, One False Move is coming out in Criterion around the same time maybe as After Hours is, so mm-hmm. good. I'm very excited. You know, yeah. Devil in a Blue Dress... That's already on Criterion. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, there's some good stuff there. Where people will will catch up. Yeah, and then there'll be more to come. I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Soon, I'm sure. So, um, yeah, well, I'm on I'm on the social medias, your letterbox and your Instagram. And I'm not. You uh, are. But I I do have a podcast, 96 Greers. That's we are true. Covering the filmography of Judy Greer. We just did the Jenna Fisher, James Gunn, two of the most powerful people. In Hollywood now, at the time they were just a married couple uh, of knuckleheads who made a fifteen hundred dollar mockumentary about uh, self absorbed philanthropist called Lolly Love. Very weird trauma esque, like trauma meets Christopher Guest movie. Weird, um, just fascinating story behind that. We get into all of that, but we're we're talking about all the Judy Greers uh, une- unexpected like th- through lines uh, in her career. Um, one of the key, one of the key supporting actors of of this dec- of this uh, century. So yeah. definitely uh, check that out. I like I like this years. podcast. I like Judy Greer. So yeah, yeah. It makes me want. It makes me want. Yeah, it makes me want to watch more of her work. But yeah. some of these movies don't sound so great. Yeah, Uptown Song Club on indefinite hiatus. Tracks of the Dan. We'll see. Uh, but uh, ninety six Greer still going strong. Excellent. And you are on Patreon.com slash Patrick Revolt. Eh, I don't want to promote that. Okay. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be on Patreon. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I wound up at Substack, which is silly, but I like it. I just like the platform. I don't know. I don't. Every time I click on a Substack article of yours, it asks me for an email. And so I think it's way worse than like a live journal because live journal doesn't ask me okay. for an email. Uh, that's I just because I, I don't. the same way. <laughs> yeah. It's just like it's a bad platform because it has more pop ups. Um, but. Oh, yeah. Okay. But, you know, I'm not. But even when you subscribe, it's asking you for an email. I don't I don't have an I don't have a Substack account. So oh. I am on a mailing list. Okay. But if I click through to the website itself. Because I'm I not see. logged in, it asks me to give it an email and log in and ask me if I want to contribute and all that. And I'm just like, okay. I, I don't have an account with you. I don't want an account with and you. Nobody I just has to read. pay to read my stuff. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. I still like it. That's fiveyears.substack.com. It's good. It's Thank good. You. It's a good uh, uh, yeah, blog. I got to keep it up. It's been such a busy time because it's been job promotion, birthday, critics festival. I'm just like, ah. Oh. So much to look forward to. Oh, by the way, since this since the festival starts, 
a day after this episode comes out, if you happen to hear this, come to the Music Box Theater for the Chicago Critics Film Festival. That's chicagocriticsfilmfestival.com. Oh boy, do we have some amazing independent films to show you. We have such sights to show you. A fire. Winner of the Palm Door. Yes. Brother, a huge hit out of TIFF. Some Star Wars documentary. <laughs> a disturbance in the force. Yes, there's plenty of things. Just go to the film, sir. Just go to the website. You'll find it all there. And you're probably following me, and I'm posting about it all the time. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and thank you for Patrick. Thank you for Patrick. Thank you for Patrick. Send that one to my mom oh, and dad. Oh, yeah, I certainly will. Thank you for Patrick. Yeah, I, I, but I say that every Or maybe, maybe it's like a, it's a, it, you might have been doing it like a uh, like a radio sign-off. Like, you know, uh, for Patrick Rapole, I'm Jim Laskowski, saying, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. For Patrick Rapole. I am Jim Laskowski saying good night, happy birthday to me. <laughs> <laughs> But not right now.